world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions, gamers dominate the tabletop, and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies, and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. There are ten fingers on two hands, each one a deadly weapon. Sounds like ten deadly fingers of kung fu to me, Don. Or ten deadly digits. Ten deadly digits. Oh, whatever. Close enough. <laughs> and so, tonight, folks, we are going to be talking about kung fu movies. Yes, we've finally gotten around to martial arts films. Because... Why not? Martial arts films were a major part <laughs> of our youth, um, maybe secondarily since we were a tiny bit late for the full craze, but but still, martial arts films are awesome, and they're one of those things that are worth talking about. So tonight, we're going to talk about them. This particular episode is at least partly inspired by a book Don and I both recently got a hold of called These Fists Break Bricks by Grady Hendrix and Chris, Pog eh, Chris Pogliali. Pogali? Pogliali? Okay. Poggy Alley? Pog <laughs> Chris. Yeah, there we go. That's good enough. Chris Poggy Alley. There we go. How Kung Fu Movies Swept America and Changed the World, um, which I highly recommend everyone listening to this podcast go out and get a copy of after the podcast. We're, we're going to spoil a few things in the book, but um, overall, it is a great book with lots of awesome Kung Fu posters and pictures that really help bring yeah. the era to life and tell the story of martial arts cinematically and not so cinematically in the United States, especially during the 20th century. So since we're going to talk about that, why not start at the beginning? So Don, what was the first martial art that really caught America's consciousness? I think, yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question. And it sort of brings to mind, there's always a, a catch with anything we talk about. As always, yes. When you go back... Uh, in North America, probably the first real pop culture interest in martial arts happens in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was all judo. All judo, all the time. Hiya. Yeah, it, 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 well, yeah, and, and it wasn't actually judo. It's just that became the generic term for martial art. Yes. But wasn't that because, like, American servicemen kind of brought it back after World War II? Like, the American servicemen being, uh, who were involved in, um, like, the occupation of Japan afterwards, didn't they bring back judo? Yeah, that was part of it, and, um, that kind of ties in, too, with, um, another idea if you want to talk martial mm -hmm. arts, and especially in pop culture. It, that goes a little further back to uh, 1942, uh, to a major Fairbaiten, I believe is how it would be pronounced, who wrote a, a couple of books. The one everybody, the first one was called Get Tough. Sounds uh, sounds good to me. How, where do I send my five cents? Actually, you can get it from uh, Amazon. It's still in print. Oh my god! And, and and what it was is he um he had worked 
in Shanghai with the police department. Mm -hmm. And the police department had kind of their shorthand martial arts that they used to teach the officers and get tough is basically that it's it's a uh it's one of the first like self-defense mm. manuals at least in english and it's it's yeah and and it's kind of a, a mishmash of 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 techniques mm -hmm. and it's interesting to note because when you talk martial arts uh, in pop culture they kind of come in two mm -hmm. flavors it comes as either a actual combat technique, hand-to-hand -hand combat mm -hmm. technique, or it's kind of a weird spiritual, almost meditation sort of thing. Right. So it's almost the extension of like yoga or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I, th I think that comes from the idea, uh, we were discussing this before the show mm -hmm. too, that if you go back further like say the pulp era and even earlier martial arts is kind of shorthand for um basically asian guys superpowers yeah that's about right you go to tibet and you learn whatever it is in tibet and you come back and use it to fight crime on the streets of america that's pretty much half the pulp heroes <laughs> yep um, they would always hang out in tibet yeah, for some reason it must have gotten really crowded there sometimes <laughs> Well, it's, it's one of those things, um, there'll be a progenitor to that, that somebody did a story that was popular and that was the premise and then everybody just Pretty copied much, yeah. it. Because Tibet really isn't a hot spot for martial arts in, in, in real life. Not really, no. Definitely not now after the Chinese destroyed all the temples and everything. But even before that, it was never really a hot spot. The monks in Tibet did learn some martial arts, I think, but they were but they weren't the, really the warrior monks, like you would find in China or Japan, for example. Yeah, and and it, again, I think it's that idea that pre World War II, any kind of spiritual Asian spiritualism, um, psychic powers, uh, weird hand to hand, it all just grouped in got grouped into one thing. Yeah. Weird so, martial arts. Yeah, so the Tibetan monks were known for like meditation and that, mm -hmm. but well, they did claim was... to be able to do miraculous feats. That didn't quite come out of the imagination of Westerners, if I recall right. The Tibetan lamas and such did claim to be able to like you know go forty days without eating food and you know to be able to jump super heights and walk through fire and all that. If, if I remember right, they really did claim to do that. They claim their martial arts would let them do superhuman stuff. Yeah, that and and that wasn't uh, that wasn't like a, a, a limited to Tibet though. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they probably got it from India among other things. Yeah, and and that was that was kind of um, like the yogi. Yep. Yep. The yogi. Yeah. Did 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 that kind of stuff, and that's uh, that was a big thing for there. But like I say, for some reason, the Tibetan one somebody must have done the story, and it stuck. Pretty much. Pretty much. Well, it does look like there was a fascination in Asia and Asian culture that took place at the very beginning of the 20th century. Like, you can find a whole bunch of uh, books by people that went over to Asia and then, like, trans they either wrote books about Asia or translated, like, Asian fairy tales or things like Romance of the Three Kingdoms or The Water Margins, and they translated them for English audiences. So that happened kind of at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 20th century, um, you find a bunch of those from that period. You can find them actually on archive.org or Project Gutenberg. 
because I've, I've gone through some of them myself. Um, and yeah, there was this odd fascination because that's really when Western, there were Westerners living over, especially in Japan, but also in China and such at that time. And then they were trying to adapt and pass along some of the stories and folklore and that, that they learned what was over there. And I think that wormed its way into the pop culture of the era. Because remember, novels were a really, really big thing at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, and so that that was kind of – remember, that they barely had radio. They barely had movies. Um, and so novels were like kind of your – that was the thing, right? That was one of your major forms of portable, easily accessible entertainment that you could look into and enjoy. And novels sold very well and the authors were pretty popular. And so it's no surprise then that some people came back from the East would hawk their like novels about, oh, here's this – or translations collections whatever that uh, about what happened in the east and so that kind of wormed its way in i'm sure there are other reasons i we, we could probably go back and find out but not right now because our focus is actually on the future or at least the future from that point of view um so in the <laughs> 1950s we start to see some judo stuff popping up in pop culture did it pop up in any movies don yeah, there, there, there were a few. I know there's one in particular you want to mention. So, um, okay, the movie Don is referring to is the Manchurian Candidate, which, uh, of course, is about how a brainwashed uh, young U.S. presidential candidate who's been controlled by evil communist powers and has been brainwashed into a double agent is exposed. However, one of the things that's been forgotten over time is how they advertised it. It was actually. The Manchurian Candidate was actually advertised as the movie where Frank Sinatra does karate. That's actually how they advertised it. <laughs> here's, the, here's the literal text from one of the uh, posters for it. See Sinatra's wildest screen fight, karate. Why did the Queen of Diamonds mean death? Manchurian Candidate? That was an actual thing. They, they, they focused on <laughs> a selling point. A selling point was Sinatra doing karate. Think about that. Frank Sinatra as one of the first karate heroes. <laughs> um, but actually, maybe we shouldn't be surprised because I believe Sinatra, like a lot of Hollywood celebrities actually, did actually study martial arts. They actually liked it and studied it. Yeah, there were there, there were a few, because again, uh, tying in with what you were saying mm -hmm. before, when you get to the beginning of the 20th century, there was an interest in this sort of thing. But like you said, people weren't ex didn't have... Um, a lot of opportunity to get exposure to stuff. So a lot of it was, was fictitious. It was novels. It was mm -hmm. the pulps. When you get after world war two, uh, travel becomes a bigger thing. Cause we advanced in vehicular technology during the war and people were exposed to this kind of thing for real. So you start to see this kind of an interest that's more of, if not an academic interest, it's an, um, an interest in the authentic things rather than the pulp versions of things. Which kind makes of. sense, yeah, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, it, and as a result, um, people began to think, oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. Now, it doesn't hurt that America was also, after post-World War II, undergoing a bit of a crime wave as well in some urban places. So people weren't exactly feeling um, safe at that time, and the idea that you could actually learn martial arts that you could use to defend yourself with was pretty appealing to them. Yeah, and that that goes back again to the uh, to a major Fairbane Fairbane Fairbane. I, uh, there's an extra syllable in it. Uh, Fairbane's book, 
he actually wrote two because he did one called Hands Off, which was self-defense yes, for women. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, Hands Off, Self-Defense for Women, and Get Tough. Those were his two books. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting thing to think that back in the 40s, that idea of women as combatants mm-hmm. was kind of, was kind of uh, an odd thing because you didn't really see that portrayed anywhere until you get to like the, the, the 50s. Yeah, well, women were supposed to be delicate flowers, right? They weren't supposed to be involved in combat. They were women were the fairer and weaker sex. Unless you were in a martial arts movie, in which case they are deadly hands of death. Well, that which comes again, you start seeing in the fifties, because prior to that, even in the pulp era, the evil queen never actually physically did anything. She had an army of misshapen minions and or weird mental yeah, powers. Yeah. Well, again, that's. That's the better strategy, right? I mean, why do it yourself when you can get some evil, dumb thug <laughs> to do it for you? That, that's what makes them smart and evil. Or right. really smart. Oh, whatever. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that uh, you're right. They didn't generate. Actually, the truth is, uh, from what I know of Chinese cinema, that was generally true in Chinese cinema as well. Um, you had a few female mm. characters pop up in the 40s, 30s, 50s. In Chinese cinema, when it was mostly wuxia stuff with characters with like swords, you know, swashbuckling, jumping around, and things like that, they didn't really have uh, the heavy martial arts stuff. And there would be a few female martial artists, mm-hmm. but not a lot of them. Um, same with the Japanese stuff of the period. Yeah, you wouldn't see the rise of the female martial artist until really the '60s and uh, going into the '70s. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that that was that was that was something you kind of started to see too. I think because um, if you if you look in real life, a lot of martial arts are meant as exercise. Well, at least the forms of martial arts that we have today are meant as exercise, because after all, we don't really yeah. need to fight to the death. So why pass along the evil death <laughs> touch and everything, the dim mac? Um, we don't really need that, unless again you're. A, MMA fighter, well, but even then, you don't really need to kill. You just need to immobilize. Yeah, even but when and when you go back to like the earliest days, like the Shaolin monks, the stuff that became mm. kung fu, it, it was exercise. It was to keep the body supple in that. We mm-hmm. get tai chi yep. nowadays, yep. stuff like that. And I think that's one of the things why when you had people that were finally getting to see like how martial arts in the countries they, they originated mm-hmm. from like China, Hong Kong, uh, Japan, they would see this idea that you would have women mm-hmm. doing yes, it as exactly. well. And that's where the idea of the female fighter that you start seeing in the sixties, I think comes from, because remember in the, the mind of the average person, that whole idea of, of martial arts and weird powers and that is still kind of all yes, jumbled exactly. together. Exactly. It's something that you're, yeah, yeah, it's it's that weird Asian stuff, basically. Yeah, yeah. because again, they don't understand. Yeah, they don't and, understand the other. They don't understand the situation. Um, because again, they don't have access to inf- real information about Asia except what they're seeing in TV and movies. And I got to tell you, even what you're seeing in TVs and movies today is not usually all that accurate. Depending, <laughs> of course, on what you're watching. Um, yeah. There's, there's some good YouTube channels, right. documentaries. Those aren't too bad, but... But yeah, if you're watching anything even today related to martial arts or we'll say fiction and drama that's not actually made in Asia, and even the stuff that's made in Asia is often highly fantasized to begin with. So 
Yeah, yeah. You're yeah. not really getting a look at what the real life of those people is like. <laughs> yeah, you get you get those weird tastes, and then that's that's where the, the pop culture kind of starts exactly. germinating exactly. from. Well, again, the the cool bits anyway that people are fascinated by, which of course, martial arts mm-hmm. are one beautiful example of that. It's 1950s, so the it's a fertile ground for imagination. And keep in mind, it wasn't just Asia that people were fascinated by as for imagination, because we talked about this before. This is also the era when fantasy actually refers to like Arabian Nights stuff and uh, Greek fantasy, and yeah. Roman fantasy. It's not actually the era of um, it's it's the era of uh, the sword and sandal that was that uh, the peplum films or something like that we we talked about before, right? And so yeah. to them. People of that time, yeah. this is just more fantasy for the grist, right? Really, right? I mean, you know, the and um, martial arts are just part of that, right? They make things exciting and interesting, so why not include them? Yeah, yeah. the The thing with that too is, at this point in pop culture, martial arts I think are still an accessory. Yes, I would agree with that. Yeah, they're still something. They're they're a gimmick to explain why the hero can do whatever it is they do. Yeah, and they're not marketed specifically. Mm-hmm. Like you get a little taste of that with the Manchurian Candidate. That you know, but I think it was more like people wanted to see Frank Sinatra using this weird new karate thing they're hearing about. Yep. And um, and that makes sense. It's just and just an extra. It's not the focus, as you said. It's it's an extra at this point. And I yeah. would argue. If, if we can move into the 60s, I would argue that was the same case there. Like when we get to the Green Horden and Cato, for example, with yep. young Bruce Lee jumping around on screen, doing all the, his martial arts and such as Cato, what, that's still not the focus, right? That was just yep. that thing that Cato, the Green Horden sidekick, was able to do. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. I mean, they, it wasn't the focus, not until later anyway. It would not become the focus of uh, the Green Hornet. Although yeah. I, I do recall that many people were very impressed by Bruce Lee's performance on the Green Hornet. Um, yeah, so that so there, there was that. It did became part of the charm of the show. But then again, the Green Hornet wasn't that good a show to begin with. So I, that, <laughs> it wasn't hard to, you know, uh, anything good came out of it probably was uh, was a bonus. <laughs> well, whatever. <laughs> Have you actually tried watching the Green Hornet? They're not, they're not that watchable, really. Yeah, I, I watched them. Uh, they were rerunning them a couple years back, and I was I was watching them again. They're, I found they're okay, but they're bland. Yeah, yeah, they're really bland. It's like a Is blanded it, up Batman, basically. Yeah, that's exactly what it was because Batman was like super popular, and they kind of wanted to do more of that, but not just do that. And yeah, they kind of didn't know what to do with it. Well, and they chose the Green Hornet, which is the oddest character of them all because <laughs> the green hornet is a superhero who pretends to be a supervillain that's yeah. that's his whole shtick he's uh he he's he's the green hornet who is supposed to be the criminal mastermind who goes around and bullies other criminal masterminds it's like but but he's not really a criminal mastermind because he doesn't actually do anything but bully other criminals right it's like, it's like <laughs> he, he and his the like, kung fu house boy it's like what Huh? Oh, okay. Anyway, I mean, it's an interesting idea, but I just don't. Anyway, again, maybe it's just me, but um, but I was just never that impressed by it, and it didn't work well for television the way it was presented. Anyway, except the game for Bruce Lee. Yeah, because I think again, it's it's 
for PV at the time and what they wanted, it's a complicated idea. Yes, that's true. And how do you explain at the beginning of each episode? Well, I guess they did. There was some speech at the beginning of each episode about how whatever the Green Hornet's real name was, like goes out and like you know terrorizes the underworld while pretending to be a bad guy or something like that. Yeah, except because it was '60s TV, he couldn't be all that terrorizing. And mm. yep, most most they just wanted him to punch somebody, and that was kind of that. This idea of adding that extra layer just kind of didn't work for the day. Nope. Not at all. So there's that. Um, but again, this is our first reference to Bruce Lee in this episode. You're going to be hearing a lot more about him later. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, just just a little bit anyway. All right. <laughs> so with that in mind, uh, we're in the 1960s. So what do you want to say about Kung Fu in the 1960s, Don? It sort of starts becoming its own thing. Mm-hmm. I think... What you see in the 1970s is is martial arts becomes the the big draw specifically. Mm -hmm. Right, right, okay. You're starting to see it in the 60s. But you, you get to the end of the 60s. One of the things that you see mm -hmm. that you're going to laugh at and nobody under 40 is going to understand. Right. But one of the first kind of of the wave, the the new wave of martial supremacy in entertainment. Mm -hmm. Is in the late sixties, comic books are just riddled with ads for like mail and learn secret kung fu techniques and all that sort. Of, like there were just tons of them at mm -hmm. the time. Yes, there was. Yeah, and that would continue for a very long time. Well, up until the eighties. Yes. Yeah. Which is 20, 20 years, and that's that's about right because when you get to the seventies, mm -hmm. which is kind of your peak saturation point. It would have been the people who were like the kids and the young teenagers in the 60s mm -hmm. that were exposed to these ads and stuff. That would have been that big fan base in the 70s. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there might have been some influence from that. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, we also shouldn't overlook, going back to the, with the 60s, we'll get to the 70s in a second. We shouldn't overlook that during the 60s also you had all the, the, the Kurosawa samurai films being shown over in America, basically. Um, yeah. you, you finally were getting a lot of the Japanese stuff. And the Japanese stuff was filled with martial action. Like they were really into it in the 1960s. There was actually quite a bit yeah. of it going on. I mean, it would continue into the 70s and they'd repurpose a lot of Japanese 1960s martial arts films in the 1970s but the japanese had already kind of hit uh, martial arts as a thing in the 1960s and so, and so to a lesser degree until the late 60s had the uh, chinese as well in hong kong um for yeah. for those who aren't familiar i guess this is a small geography lesson okay so 19 in 1950s 1960s uh, asia in 1950s 1960s asia um, Japan is on its way up. It's the manufacturing hub of the world at this point. It's kind of like China is in the modern day. But China itself is behind the bamboo curtain. So China is basically retreated into communism and is basically ignoring the rest of the world for the most part. It's kind of like cut, completely cut off. So Asia for the most part at this point in history is Japan, Korea, uh, South Korea obviously. The Korean War was fought in the 1950s. Um, and so you've got Korea, which is also kind of following Japan's footsteps. You've got Taiwan, also following Japan's footsteps, a little step behind Korea at that point. And you've got Hong Kong, which is kind of the mm -hmm. pearl of Asia during
during this period. Um, and the gateway to China and really uh, the West's only real connection point with China at that point. And so yeah. China, Hong Kong was kind of its own little city state. So as an end result, it had its own industries of everything, including a cinema industry and a, a hungry population that, was, that wanted this material. Um, referring mostly to the Chinese di- diaspora uh, in Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, Macau, Taiwan, obviously, and of course the overseas Chinese as well. Um, and there's also Chinese in Vietnam and other places as well. And so that's who Hong Kong was making their movies for because they couldn't get access to the Chinese market except as bootlegs anyway. Yeah. Their stuff wasn't allowed in China. So China's not really a player in this game. And because China's not a player in the game, uh, so really there's only two cinematic powerhouses in Asia. Um, obviously Hong Kong and Japan. Because J- Japan has the money to do it. And of course, everyone's like going nuts for Kurosawa's work back during this period. And a few other Japanese uh, directors as well, but mostly Kurosawa. And, um, and Hong Kong has got the Shaw Brothers. And during the 1960s, the Shaw Brothers are basically the, pow- uh, the cinematic powerhouses of Hong Kong who are just working to crank out endless numbers of uh, dramas and comedies and, and martial arts films. Of course, the martial arts films they're producing, as I mentioned earlier, are mostly wuxia martial arts films, like, which are basically sword and um, what we'll call it? People leaping around with swords and swashbuckling, basically, right? <laughs> They're not really martial arts films as you would think of them. And in fact, the the Hong Kong uh, market was actually very reluctant to get into the whole like martial arts thing, as you would know it today, like the kung fu thing. It took a little while actually to happen. Mm. And it, um, yeah. and I guess I can talk about it now. It wasn't until a movie came out called The One Armed Swordsman, starring Jimmy Wong Yu, who ironically enough is Taiwanese. Um, and it came out in 67. And it was a movie that really captured the hearts and minds of uh, Asians, specifically Chinese in living in Taiwan and Hong Kong and around. And was a, actually, it's a really good movie. I do recommend you watch it if you get the chance. Um, but yeah, the key point was instead of being this like uh, magical swordsman basically jumping around and swashbuckling this guy was just this hard-bitten hero who literally got his arm chopped off during the early part during the early part of the film and then like had to learn to do martial arts with his other arm and then now it sounds so trite today but that's because we've seen a thousand copies of it but at the time it was like brutal and kind of gritty and there was blood in it and it was like it's it's actually a good film but there's a there's a dour gritty tone to it and the Hong Kong and Chinese audiences of the time absolutely took to it like like ducks to water. They thought, this is the greatest thing ever. They began demanding more of it. <laughs> so Shaw Brothers being Shaw Brothers are like, okay, you guys want more of this? All right, let's do it. And so they did. <laughs> and this resulted in new One-Armed Swordsmen and lots of One-Armed Swordsmen sequels and copies and everything else. Because, <laughs> yeah, people went absolutely nuts for this stuff. And it started the... Chinese audiences in a new trend. And so this is 1967, okay? Um, eventually, yeah. they'll it'll branch out into other areas. But th- this is the key point in 67 is when the Chinese Hong Kong kung fu genre basically is born in the Shaw Brothers, in Shaw Brothers yeah. with One-Armed Swordsman. This is important because of what will happen next. And what will happen next, Don? Yeah. <laughs> The 1970s. God help uh, us all. Yes, yeah, yes, it will. Because, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. because, 
you you've 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 kind of brought up something that not a lot of fans in North America mm. realize. But when you talk about the wuxia stuff and we've talked about the samurai yes, dramas. Have. Those were those were historical and they had all kinds of like like fantastic swordsmanship and yes, acrobatics. They but they were they were big stories. They were they were about like the upper echelons of society. They were they were the equivalent of like a King Arthur movie. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly what they were like. Yep, I would agree. Yeah, the the one armed swordsman is kind of your first like street level dark gritty kind of guy it, it, it corresponds with what you see in north america at the time with uh new hollywood and the anti-hero mm -hmm. exactly and so that's why it fit right in um although ironically enough the, the one armed swordsman wouldn't be shown for like another seven years i think in america it, while it shook well it <laughs> shook up asia it didn't shake up america yeah um, that would take another movie in the 1970s to, to to basically trigger the the Hong Kong kung fu movie craze. Yeah, because again, I think um, what you had is a lot of the importers when they thought of like martial arts film, they were thinking of like the wuxia stuff. Yes, exactly. Which American and, audiences weren't generally interested in, or at least they didn't think they were. Because as far as I, I'd have to go back and check, but I don't think there were any actual uh, Shaw Brothers wuxia movies being picked up. Like the the American um, industry, the oh my god, the, sorry, the American studios basically weren't interested in that kind of thing. They thought American audiences aren't going to watch this. Why should we show it, right? Yeah, because I mean, at it, it's the 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 sort of thing to an American audience at the time. Sure, they had the the flashiness, but they were still kind of too genteel. Mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. And and this was a history that wasn't ours. So like all these characters that showed up in the films, a lot of which were classic characters, nobody knew here. Mm, mm, exactly. Yeah. And and again, you saw that kind of that changing. Mm -hmm. That when 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 you had after Bonnie and Clyde, you could have like a dark gritty movie with antiheroes or characters who the the protagonists are downright villains yeah exactly and that's the new hollywood era where people are like oh this they're okay with that now if i remember right uh, and bonnie and clyde came out in 1967 as well so you could see actually i think i think in a weird way in global culture there was kind of that movement was going on you know not just in asia and one-armed swordsman did it there but bonnie and clyde in america like there was that movement that was happening Although, again, it would take a couple years before the Kung Fu craze would actually hit America. Yeah. Uh, but, we're, but we're getting there. Mm -hmm. we're, we're only a few years off. Okay. So <laughs> well, what do you want to cover in between that time? Like, what do you think is worth mentioning that happened between 67 when these groundbreaking films, One Armed Swordsman and Bonnie and Clyde hit, and six, 1973, which is when... A really, really, really other important kung fu film will hit the cinemas in America. So, what do you want to cover between those two? Um, I think it, it this gets so weird, but the quintessential example of what happened mm -hmm. and why the the what we now know is as a, a, a martial arts film or a kung fu film or a chop sake mm -hmm. film. The the real um, not progenitor, because like you say, this has been going on in, in, in like, uh, Hong Kong and, and, and Taiwan. Well, not so much Taiwan, but Hong Kong has been making these for a few years before this mm -hmm. happens, mm -hmm. but kind, 
kind of the test model happens in 1971. Okay, which movie was this? I'm thinking, of course, of The Legend of Billy Jack. Uh, okay. Why don't you tell our audience about The Legend of Billy Jack and how that fits in? Uh, it's, 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 it's really hard to tell the, the, the hero of the story and they made a bunch of these films. And this is why I say this is kind of the test subject or the, or patient zero for this. Uh, the, the main character is like a, a half native American wandering hippie Kung Fu master who fights political corruption with, with roundhouse kicks to the face. Uh Uh-huh. Um, yes, it's, it's. And and what this really shows, and this is where the one-armed swordsman is the progenitor of this on the other side of the planet. It's the idea that you're looking at a martial arts wielding hero who's a common person mm-hmm. who's been kind of like like pooped upon by the system, and this is what gives them the power to to get their revenge or set things right or or what whatever the theme of whatever film we're talking about mm-hmm. is and it starts this idea and we've talked about this again when we talked about um law and order in pop mm-hmm. culture the martial arts at this time have become a gritty street level thing they're not that like i shave my head and meditate in the mountain for 20 years to do there's something that ordinary blue collar working schlubs can use essentially as a mm-hmm. cudgel to deal with like society's right. ills. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's the same idea. Like we talked in the law and order episode, this is the era of like Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood's dirty Harry. And that, that idea of the lone individual that's fighting against a, an essentially broken society. Right. Hmm. Actually, and I can take an extension of that that also involves martial arts that should be mentioned before. In 1972, a certain series called, coincidentally enough, Kung Fu with David Carradine premieres um, on in October. And this mm-hmm. introduces American audiences to the, of course, Kwai Chang Kane, the wandering Kung Fu martial artist in the Old West. So it combines Westerns, which people already were familiar with, and Eastern martial arts and brings them together in a synergy that people generally fell in love with because actually they were fairly well done as well. Um, and I, this helped to popularize in the minds of general Americans. It's like, oh, Kung Fu, that's that stuff. Even though if you watch Kung Fu episodes today, it looks like they're fighting in slow motion. Actually, that's it's, or fighting underwater would be the better way to describe it because their <laughs> movements are just so damn slow. At least in the early episodes, anyway. I think they sped up later on. But, uh, yeah, their, their, their movements are pretty slow. But it was a major hit. And it did, it did interest yeah. people as well. So that was kind of a bit of a, an important turning point. It wasn't – this is where things get a little fuzzy. Uh, these fists break bricks suggest that it wasn't the turning point in kung fu and kung fu movie culture becoming popular. But kung fu itself was very popular in its time. It, it was, and again, you're seeing this idea like like we've we've talked about when you're getting into the 70s, society's in yes. decline mm-hmm. and people are scared and there's all kinds of like different factions at each other's throats. It's basically the 70s mm-hmm. were now 
real without the internet. So you had to mimeograph yes. your 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 uh, your screed rather than just mm-hmm. posting it everywhere. And martial arts were a part of that in real life because mm-hmm. again, it was this idea of of self defense, yep. of reliance. This kind of starts taking off in in the sixties yeah. because that was one of the things. When you get to the early seventies, a lot of martial arts were kind of seen as an outlaw yes, thing. Yes, they were. Yeah, well, that's why Billy Jack's using it, right? And even Kwai Chang Kane is an outlaw yep. character. Yep, and that's in and that's for for people listening. That's in mm. real life. That it was this idea that that because the kids were into it, it was of course bad or awesome, depending on your point of view. But then. Well, yeah, if you were mm-hmm. one of the kids, sure. But it got it got tied into stuff like that. As I recall, there was um, there was like a uh, in the early seventies in in New York, I think it was there was like a murder mm-hmm. or something, and it was it was uh, the 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 guy that did it was a martial arts guy and essentially just beat somebody to death. And then that put that idea that this is like the deadly new thing that the mm-hmm. kids are into and. Um, this was something, as I recall at the time, the uh, the Black Panthers mm-hmm. in the states were were big on martial arts for their members because they they needed self defense against the good old boys oh, yeah. of those days, and that got tied in that this was you know the the upcoming race riots were going to be formulated and the 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 people who who weren't white were arming themselves, and again it was an Asian thing, so that was suspect to a lot of people mm-hmm. to begin with as well. Yeah. That it was it wasn't good old you know white guy Queensbury rules boxing like a sensible human being would follow but and it got that kind of it had mm-hmm. that bad rep and it also like you said that made it awesome and then you start seeing it ties in again just all of this all at once it becomes that that tool of of the the outlaw that tool of 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 the youth because that's mm-hmm. what the movies that become yep. popular yep. all about. Exactly. Well, also, plus they're also filled with awesome action. Um, but, yeah. So, well, okay, you say that, and we got Billy Jack in 71, and we got Kung Fu in 72, which are outlaw films. But I'm going to, but the movie that actually sets off the Kung Fu craze of the 70s, the main character is actually not an outlaw. Not, not exactly. And we'll talk, uh, so, uh-huh. so that's the one little uh, wrinkle in your theorem, uh, but we'll talk about, actually, let's talk about that movie. In fact, b- but before I do, I'm going to read some of the poster from that movie. The martial arts masterpiece, sights and sounds like never before. See one incredible onslaught after another, pale before the forbidden ritual of the steel palm. Cheer the young warrior who takes on the evil warlords of martial arts. Come prepared for the thrill of a lifetime. Learn the secrets of the five fingers of death. The new movie sensation that's stunning the entire world. So, Five Fingers of Death, a.k.a. King Boxer. It, uh-huh. it, that's all is its other name. Uh, Five Fingers of Death was how they retitled it in English. Um, became <laughs> actually the movie that triggered the Kung Fu Revolution. Uh, Five Fingers of Death, by the way, is actually a, a good movie. Um, it's actually quite a good movie if you get the chance to see. It's literally is the progenitor of pretty much everything that comes after it like all the martial arts cliches you're familiar with five fingers of death did them first <laughs> and i can say that because i recently rewatched it and i'm like oh my god this is like kung fu movie the movie basically it that's the way i would describe it it's got a <laughs> tournament it's got evil masters good ma- 
good masters, martial arts schools fighting each other. Every single element you're going to find in martial arts films for the literally next 20 years is in Five Fingers of Death, pretty much. They're all almost variations of five. And on top of that, it's actually a good film. It's well shot. It's well paced. It's well acted. It's interesting. Even the English dub is actually pretty good. Except different people keep calling the main character by different names because they're mispronouncing part of his Chinese name wrong. So every voice actor calls him something else, mm-hmm. which is kind of amusing if you catch on to that. But that's not the point. Um, the point is, is that it, it premiered about five months after Kung Fu did in a theater in New York. And audiences went absolutely crazy for it because it was a really good film. But again, it's about a young martial artist who is preparing for a big uh, martial arts tournament. He goes off to study with a friend of his master, goes through the usual hero's journey of um, struggling and leveling up and meeting bad guys and cute girls and everything else. And then eventually there's a tournament at the end and I'm going to spoil everything. He wins. Although... After the tournament, stick around <laughs> because there are actually a bunch of twists that happen after the tournament, which I was quite impressed with. Um, so, but the, overall, <laughs> it's a pretty well done movie. And um, I haven't spoiled anything because I didn't tell you about the twist part. Anyway, so the point is, is that this movie, which is just about, you know, this young man following the rules, not bucking them for the most part. He's a good law abiding guy who just who follows the rules at least until he's pushed a little too far at the end. That's true. But he's not an outlaw. But but it's nonstop action. It's nonstop action with just enough plot to keep it interesting and just enough character to keep it going. (laughs) And it works. It's about an an hour and 40 minutes of awesome. Look at the 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 ad, though. What's the, the first like two lines of the ad? The martial arts masterpiece. Yeah, but what do they 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 when they're they're talking about the, isn't there a reference to him fighting the the corrupt authorities? War, in there? Yes, there it is. Cheer the young warlord. Or sorry, cheer the young warrior who takes on the evil warlords of martial arts. Yeah, I thought of that too as I was reading that. Going, oh, okay. So they are okay. Here's the catch: they are selling it as that. But if yeah. you actually watch the movie, it's not really. That's not no. really what's going on. But I the. Think, the but they're Sorry. selling it for, for they're marketing it that way because they've caught on that that's what the youth want. I agree. Yep. And it's it's because member seventy three. You also have the other thing that kind of that it's it's the 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 one two punch. Mm-hmm. That five fingers of death is is the first strike, and then the KO comes with. Enter the dragon, isn't it? Yep. Because that's the that's the movie that it's they're very similar films, but that's the one that gives every the, the world Bruce Lee. Yes, exactly. And he becomes the face of the martial arts movie. And this is where things get a little bit uh, interesting. So realistically, I would argue that there, there, things are happening on two levels because Five Fingers of Death is a cult hit. And it's a hit within especially the black and Latino and Asian communities of the United States, okay? And the inner city hit, I would call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it was one of those movies that they released. They didn't, The Warner Brothers who released it didn't have big expectations. It, you know, word of mouth basically spread and suddenly it became a huge sensation, relatively speaking. But I would argue that um, Enter the Dragon was an even bigger sensation, Oh, obviously it was. It was a much bigger sensation. So I would say that among the minorities, sorry, um, Five Fingers of Death was the movie. But I would argue that among the greater white audiences and global audiences, it was Enter the Dragon. 
Yeah, and I I think you're 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 onto something. That's why I say it's the one two punch. Yeah, yeah. It hit it hit that, high and hit low as well. Yeah, because basically, uh, Enter the Dragon is kind of the more Hollywood of the two films. Much more so. Yes, that's true. And that's why it has broader general appeal. And like I say, it makes it gives the 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 martial arts as entertainment its face. Mm, yeah, exactly. And yeah. you'll 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 see that face in many clone directly from it for the next like 15 years yep yep whereas the five fingers of death is kind of the more it's the more authentic version of that story Mm -hmm. and then that's the one that draws in kind of the um the people that are too cool for the the mainstream one yep yep and then that's why like i say you get this kind of two-pronged attack Mm -hmm. that brings in a very broad audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would agree with that, that. That, that, like you say, the the five fingers appeals to like kind of the inner city kids. Um, uh, Enter the dragon appeals to everybody, but it, again, to more like your your urban mobile types. Mm-hmm. But it brings them all in together at the same time, so it has that result of establishing a very broad audience which means now that the floodgates are open they just bring tons of these things of, of varying quality um yes. to, to the shores and you've got an audience f- for all of it because like i said you've got that broad that broad fan base now that mm-hmm. you can do all kinds of different things yes i completely agree with that it created we had the, the one two punch in the cinemas we had kung fu which was still on the air in uh, on tv mm-hmm. so in general americans were being saturated with kung fu entertainment and it's like this stuff is awesome and naturally you know the the various producers sa- saw the money they flew over to hong kong and they grabbed everything they could to start showing in their theaters <laughs> yep and then sometimes they just move chopped it up a little bit called it something else and released it again and again and again and again, and again, and again, and again. <laughs> yeah yeah that's that that was the problem um yeah so anything anything that they could i mean when we say anything we really mean anything one of the best examples of this is probably cato and the green hornet which was uh, the result of a father and son buying up the rights to the old green hornet series that nobody cared about basically taking out all the cato fights because there was a huge demand for Bruce Lee content and then releasing it as a kind of sort of almost movie in theaters. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, that's how crazy this got like at the lower tier. I call this the lower tier. That's what was happening. And not only that, I mean, there are stories, for example, uh, from the 1970s. Okay. And Times Square, remember at this point, well, you wouldn't know. Times Square was the major center for um, low-budget grindhouse theaters back in this time, which is mostly showing porn and horror at this point. But they very quickly realized that kung fu movies were what were making the money. The grindhouse theaters of Times Square, even the porno theaters, basically switched to kung fu theaters. Like, literally, (laughs) kung fu was so popular, it drowned out porn. Think about that for a minute. (laughs) Think about that. That's how popular... Like, we're we're not making enough money on porn... This Kung Fu stuff is even hotter. Let's just start showing that. And it eventually reached the point where even 
this blew my mind. Even the peep show theaters. Okay, imagine this. The peep show theaters, okay, the ones where, the, I'm talking about the ones where you would go in, and it's kind of like OnlyFans, but, you know, truly OnlyFans, um, where you would go in, <laughs> you'd sit down in this little booth, the screen, there's a little barrier that would go up, there'd be glass between you and a stripper who would basically do what she did or whatever, and you'd give her a little extra cash to do certain things. Again, glass, no one's touching anyone. And, uh, or, or they, or maybe they show, uh, you'd be able to watch a, a short, like five, 10 minute or whatever, little porno flick or something like that. That's what happened in these peep show theaters, right? They replaced the strippers with TVs or small or small projectors showing Kung Fu movies. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> Think about that. I mean, can you imagine that? That OnlyFans decides, no, no, we're, we're not making enough money off sex. We're going to start fo- focusing on kung fu and action movies. But that's literally what happened in New York during this time. The, you know, the, the sexaholics were going downtown to get their, to get their fix. <laughs> and they were finding kung fu instead. <laughs> not that they didn't make kung fu porn. They made that too. But <laughs> still, but that, that, that's, that's what kind of blows my mind. This is how popular it got during the 1970s and early 1980s. It really did. And in mm. fact, it's so popular that even trying, like, even the book that we're both using as a reference point doesn't really cover all of it. Like, it's covering little pieces of it, but it, it just, you just, there's just too much. There's just too yeah. much. So, yeah, so in the 1970s, Kung Fu got really, really popular. Yeah, and, and and we we mentioned this. Uh, we were talking about this before. Like, I remember as a kid in the seventies, like he, Windsor used to have all kinds of like, like we had actual like grind houses, and we had a lot of like little independent theaters mm. and that. And I remember all of this stuff being in the yes. theaters, and on like like late night television and stuff. We had like it, it really. When you get kind of the mid seventies, it really just takes mm-hmm. off and and yeah, keeps yeah. going. Exactly. Well, did you guys have any actual like Windsor has a Chinatown or at least had a Chinatown anyway at one point? Um, did was there an actual Chinatown theater that like showed Chinese movies and such back in those days or Asian films? There kind of was because you you remember. Um, like Windsor's equivalent uh, of a Chinatown is right yes, by yeah. the Yes, and I remember going to, there was a theater in Chinatown there. I remember going and watching like uh, Legend of the Overfiend and I think Toxic Avenger. And we watched a bunch of weird stuff back in that theater back in the day. It was mo- it was kind of like a repertory grindhouse by the early 1990s when we were going there. Yeah, there there, there used to be a couple around there and they would, they would show uh, stuff okay. like that. Every so often, it wasn't there wasn't like an exclusive one that showed exclusively Asian okay. films, but you had ones that would show a lot because again, it was the neighborhood and it was the same thing too. There were a lot of places um, that would get like um, videotapes when you get to the early eighties. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that when we get to the eighties. Yeah, yeah. So there there was a lot of a lot of that sort of thing. Nothing super exclusive, but no, we we got like I said, we all tons of stuff and that's one of the reasons why uh even as a kid i realized some of the old wuxia stuff they were putting in the package deals mm-hmm. they were selling yeah, they in were. The theaters yep, yep. and the networks because mm-hmm. because yeah you would see stuff that all of a sudden like one of these films would just be really fancy looking yeah 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 and and like i i was about 
seven at the time, so I couldn't really, I didn't really understand the diff, but you'd get, you know, like the, the half-naked sweaty guys that are fighting it out in an alley one week, and then you go back to the theater, and they're showing something that takes place in this giant palace, and everybody has these, like, flowing robes and stuff, and it was, it was really odd, but it all kind of got mixed in together at the time. No, I could see that. Well, it kind of did for me on TV during the 1980s, too. Um, and you're right. What you're seeing there is the Shaw brothers, going back to them, of course, um, actually did have budget. Like they were they were screwing over their actors and their production teams and everything. But they actually <laughs> did have budget. And you did see it on the screen sometimes. Again, not yeah. they had higher budget films. They had lower budget films. But they did actually produce some really nice looking stuff. But what happened is once the Kung Fu explosion started and suddenly you had all these people buying out everything that Hong Kong could produce, naturally you had a couple other companies like Golden Harvest pop up and they were starting to produce Kung Fu movies and a lot of them were on more on the cheap for obvious reasons, right? <laughs> you get, you, they were cranking these things out as fast as they possibly could. And yeah. yeah, so that's what would happen. And Golden Harvest would be very important because it's the one that would uh, start the career, I believe, of Jackie Chan and um, a lot of the others. Because, yeah, they were basically producing low-budget martial arts films, which the one of the nice things, really, martial arts film, you really just need like a forest, a house, um, and a couple sweaty guys, and you're kind of good <laughs> to go, at least if you're doing traditional period martial arts anyway. Oh, and a gravel pit, and maybe a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> You're good to go. Like it's it's funny actually how many martial arts films you watch where it's like okay there's so there'll be a scene in a house at the beginning and if you're paying attention you'll see that same house later on maybe from another angle they'll use it for some other set <laughs> and there's definitely a couple mountainside sets there's at least two or three scenes where people are in forests usually fighting each other and then there'll definitely be something set in a gravel pit that's usually dressed up to make it look like a tournament arena or something. Yeah, don't don't forget too at this era at this point with the the martial arts mm -hmm. films, you're also starting to get the really cheap ones out of like Indonesia and the Philippines. Ooh, yeah, yeah, the ones that are semi coherent. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, because they got into the filmmaking with like the super spy stuff in the '60s. They did I actually didn't know that. Yeah, there was a fair amount. Like they, not, most of these things weren't real popular. We'll say. Mm -hmm. Because they, they, again, they, they just crank them out as disposable films. And then when the martial arts craze took over, they shifted. Right. And some of their martial arts stuff um, was a little better known because a lot of it was just weirder. Right. Like there's, oh, I can't remember what it is, but there's like, there's the one, uh, it's, it's, I think it's out of the Philippines where it's like mm -hmm. um, two Kung two like old kung fu guys fighting a pangolin like a woman whose head pops off her shoulders and all the guts are hanging out and she goes around eating babies and it's like two martial arts guys like fight, fighting this thing and, and it was really they did a lot of stuff that was just bizarre like that wow yeah yeah well again they're combining it with their whatever is um available also keep in mind that even like Hong Kong, these Kung Fu movies weren't monolithic, right? I mean, yeah. what would happen is, especially going as, like everything, it evolved. So, you know, originally you could have your one arm boxer guy, but it wasn't very long before you had to actually add some other spice to it to get audiences to enjoy it. Because, you know, they, they okay, I've seen the one arm boxer guy. I've seen the Bruce Lee clone. Oh, God, have I seen the Bruce Lee clones? Um <laughs> 
Like there's like a hundred of them. Um, so it didn't take long before they evolved and you got like martial arts comedy, um, which, which uh, yeah. Jackie Chan was a, uh, was a part of because Jackie Chan's first movies, for example, were actually attempts where he was basically, he was a Bruce Lee clone. They were, they were using him as a Bruce Lee clone. And then I think it was Drunken Master where they actually yep. kind of decided to make it more of a martial arts comedy and they kind of let his comedic side show and it was a huge hit. So suddenly everybody was producing Drunken Master. Um, yep. And then Jackie's <laughs> buddy, Samo Hung, did a movie called, which I've seen, uh, called, a famous movie called Encounters of the Spooky Kind. And oh, close, uh, it's got another name. Yeah, it does. Well, it's also called Close Encounters of the Spooky Kind. Because um, again, they're Close Encounters of a Third Kind. They're playing off it. This came a little later. And this was the first attempt at, at merging Hong Kong uh, martial arts, Not the, maybe not the first, but the first major successful su- attempt at merging martial arts and horror together. Because um, mm-hmm. so you, you had these uh, monk characters that were using martial arts to fight on-live hopping vampires. If you see the hopping Chinese vampires who are wearing the old-style robes and they have their arms straight out stiff and they're hopping along, that's from Encounters of the Spooky Kind. It was the first movie to use them as, vil- as kind of horror character villains characters. And so that was the first time you yeah. saw them. And so that became its own genre. Like, you know, Hong, and of course there were sexploitation kung fu movies would eventually naturally pop up as well. And mind you, a lot of the early kung fu movies actually tended to slip in, the, not the Shaw Brothers, but the non-Shaw Brothers stuff tended to slip in some, you know, some nudity and some sex when they could. You saw that yes. kind of branching out in all different directions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's also the idea, too, that, that you got to remember there were so many of these things being made that there's a lot of um, different levels of quality. Yeah. Often from often from the same studio that they'd make like one one martial arts film that they'd put like budget right, yeah. into. And then since they already had the sets and costumes, they'd then make like five cheapy right. ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Yeah, they well they're 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 following the Roger Corman school. Um where it's like, well, we have the sets and we have the costumes, so how many movies can we make with them before we have to actually tear the sets down or return the costumes? Yeah. Well, it's Wednesday. We've got these until Sunday, so that's three more movies. <laughs> that's Get exactly work. how it worked. That's exactly how I, I just finished reading Corman's biography recently. Uh, how, I ma- you know, how I made whatever 100 movies in Hollywood and never lost a dime, something like that. And that's exactly how it worked. Oh my God! Is that exactly how his 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 production worked? <laughs> and he was so good at it too. Well, good in a relative, good at making the perhaps not making good movies, but that's that's an entirely different story. <laughs> we'll talk about Corman another time. But yeah, the Hong Kong studios were working on that principle too. Whether it was Shaw yeah. Brothers, because remember, this is something that people easily forget today. Like movie theaters back in the sixties and seventies, and up until the eighties when video cassettes came around, they needed new content almost every week. Like are they yeah. in North America and in Asia, this was absolutely true. And in fact, um, I remember reading at one point, I think it was the 60s, where your average Japanese movie studio was producing like, was it 20 films a week? Something like that. Because they mm-hmm. these studios also owned the theater chains, right? And they had to have content for their theater chains every week. And so they were churning out all these films. It was just it was just astounding how fast they churned these things out. They were effectively making TV is what they were making because they were usually fairly short films by modern standards and somewhat padded and such. But, yeah. And that was Japan. So 
Japan, yeah, so we can talk about that too. But so in, but in Hong Kong, they had this just grindhouse, and that extended to to Taiwan as well. Um, the guy who did uh, Jimmy Wang Yu, the guy who did One Armed Swordsman, actually after a couple of years, there's the story in the book how that talks about how he basically got out of his contract with Shaw Brothers because he said because they weren't really utilizing him and he wasn't happy. And so he, but the deal was he had to leave Hong Kong and he couldn't make any more movies in Hong Kong. If he did, the triads would come and kill him. Mm-hmm. So, so, so he solved the problem. He went back to Taiwan where he was from originally, opened up a studio and used Hong Kong money, Hong Kong backers to start just churning out movies in, in Taiwan. And so that's yeah. why you'll get a huge number of his movies were, were made in Taiwan. So Taiwan was also a major center of uh, movie production during that era, which even though they were under a dictatorship at the time, the dictators were kind of cool with this. Well, yeah. Oh, no, it, no, it didn't just bring in the funds, actually. <laughs> um, I remember reading that there was actually this martial arts TV show that called The Bodyguards. Okay. And th- that's what it translates to in English. And it basically was a – it was about a bunch of like they, – here, they, they were basically convoy guards um, that, you know, when they – in old mm. China. You know, they, they protected convoys and everything like that, you know, caravans, etc. in old China. Anyway, so the dictator of uh, Taiwan was Chiang Kai-shek. At least that's his Jiang Jie-shir, if you want the proper Chinese name. He was the biggest fan of this show ever. He was a huge martial arts and like <laughs> like action movie fan. He loved. In fact, the bodyguards was so popular that when they kind of finished the show was done, he's like, "Why are you stopping? Keep making it." And they're like, "Shit, okay, fine." <laughs> so they kept making it for years with just kind of like just pretty much phoning it in, just because. He just because they were afraid of him, they were afraid to literally stop making it. They were afraid they'd all be thrown in jail if they did. True story. And so huh. they, they 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 just kind of just randomly it's like, oh, Bob, you want to write the script this week?" And it, it apparently turned into quite the mess. But um, you can actually see the bodyguards. Uh, a couple episodes of it got turned into a movie, and you can actually find it on YouTube. Um, it's I've seen it. It's not very oh. good. <laughs> it's let's say it's to say it's, it's imagine <laughs> a cheap wuxia movie, but cheaper <laughs> but and, and and lower quality visual because you're watching it on like you're watching a print that was meant for uh, late 1970s you know Taiwan TV um, but it is there if you want to go find it anyway but the, so actually so yeah Chiang Kai-shek's like yeah more kung fu set him up um so 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 he was totally okay wow. with this actually as far as I know anyway um so but yeah so they started using that and of course you know, Japan got tapped into as well because, of course, naturally, the Japanese are like, well, these Hong Kong action movies are selling well. Actually, and they became big in Japan, too. Like, Bruce Lee and all that. No, yeah. that, that was a huge hit in Japan. This is one of the reasons why in pretty much every thing that involves martial arts in Japan, there's a Bruce Lee character. Everything. <laughs> or at least his eyebrows. Eyebrow. I mean, hell, Bruce Lee meets <laughs> Mad Max, Fist of the North Star. I mean, yeah, there's That's there's the yeah, there's Bruce Lee from. characters <laughs> in uh, there's Bruce Lee characters in Dragon Ball. There's Bruce Lee characters in every Japanese fighting game. There's Bruce Lee characters in everything because Bruce Lee was super popular, and so the, even the Japanese were like, "Whoa, yeah. how do we how do we capitalize on this?" And the end result of that was a was a gentleman named Sunny Chiba, who was a <laughs> you know, um, skilled martial arts stuntman of the time, and they said, "Sunny, you look good with your shirt off." 
get out there and kick some ass. And so he did. And he became super popular in Japan and most of the, in Asia, a lot of the world. Did okay in, in America. Um, he, I, I would actually argue yeah. that the only reason he didn't become the next Bruce Lee, because it, he was popular kind of in the mid to late 70s, and he was popular, uh, was because he couldn't speak English. So unlike Bruce Lee... When Bruce, you were watching Bruce Lee on screen, you were watching Bruce Lee and you could actually even hear him and there was certain charm and charisma to him. Chiba has a certain charm and charisma. I'm a huge fan of Chiba, but the stuff that they brought over was the Bruce Lee clone stuff where he tends to, he's just aping Bruce Lee and he can't really speak English. You're hearing a dubbed version and it's kind of like, it's okay. It's, it's great. It's good, really good if you like Chiba style stuff, but it's not quite at the level of Bruce Lee. And I would argue... That's one of the reasons why the American studios couldn't bring him over and use him as a new Bruce Lee, like for an Enter the Dragon type film, exactly because he couldn't speak English. And that's one of the things that held him yeah. back. And I would argue that was one of Bruce Lee's great um, assets, ironically enough, the fact that he did at least partly grow up in the United States. And so his being able to actually act yeah. in English for an English speaking audience was one of the things that made them accept him. Yeah, that, there's that, and the other Ooh. thing I think with um, with Bruce Lee is that he was an actor, and he was a martial artist. That's true too. Yeah, and he had acting experience. God help him with uh, Green Hornet and um, and a number of other films too. Well, that and the idea when they'd interview him, mm -hmm. he could speak about the actual like practical part of the martial arts and. Yep. The spiritual part of the martial arts, because he, Which was, he did a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that was part of he in in that regard. He was the total package. Mm, yeah, like he he'd, he'd even invented his own martial art. Yes, yes, that's true. So he could he could play the part of the celebrity, and he could also play the part of the teacher, and mm. that's a big part. I think why he had so much universal appeal. Right. Yeah, no, no. That made sense, actually. Yeah, he was the guy you wanted to be your sensei, your kung fu teacher. No question on that, mm. yeah. Because that was the thing with, like, say, Chiba or uh, Jackie Chan. Mm. Yeah. They're very entertaining people, but they're they're actors and entertainers mm. before martial artists. And they are. Uh, it, it, that, that was what made Bruce Lee that legend, was that he could play the whole field. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Where, I agree with the, that. Yeah, the people that came after him, like I say, they were entertainers, and and both those guys are are, are phenomenal. Like they're 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 actually both good actors, but they're entertaining people. And if you see like interviews, that they're very witty. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But they're still celebrities, and that yes. that's like I say, that was that was why I think nobody who followed Lee ever achieved what he did because they weren't that total package. I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I don't. I think the closest thing that I can think of that followed Lee, you're gonna laugh when I say this, is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, I would, I, I would argue I that Arnie is actually kind of the total package. I, I would he, 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 not as a not as a martial as an action star, not as a martial artist, but but Schwarzenegger, you know, because he came again like Lee, he came from the background of bodybuilding and uh, he came from this actual athletic background. And so that yeah. let him talk about this material once he worked out the whole accent issues and stuff like that. But, you know, but that <laughs> let him um, and he gave him an authenticity to him. And he was, of course, right. witty and charming and every charming as hell as well. 
And so that gave him an authenticity like Lee that let him, you know, become a megastar, basically. Like, I do think that if Lee hadn't have died of an overdose, Lee probably would have become a megastar. He became a megastar anyway, but he would have become, like, the next level megastar, similar to how Schwarzenegger became in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. At least that's my take on it anyway. But, yeah, but and Lee was quite the megastar. He was such a megastar that, that when he, you know, died after, I believe he only made, like, four films technically, um, they... Kept making Bruce Lee films for, for, <laughs> for like almost another 10 years. Yep. <laughs> Some of them with him actually in them. Yeah, I know. So, well, in varying degrees, yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> isn't there one that it's like they, they're like old home movies that they spliced into a film? There's old home movies. There's one where he's actually acting as the action choreographer director, director and they basically, what is, I think they put in the... He was demonstrating how to do the fights with the actors, and they just used that as an actual fight material or something like that. Yeah, so Bruce, anything that involved Bruce Lee, including his footage from his funeral, got used. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that was part of the story, right? Is that when I think it was uh, Godfrey Ho, who ran Golden Harvest, paid Bruce Lee's widow for the rights to use the footage of the funeral, to record the funeral and use the footage of it in whatever he wanted. Oh, yeah. And that turned out to be, was it Bruce Lee Lives or something? He basically turned it into this like conspiracy film documentary. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy if you think about it. Which, which I believe uh, he got sued for by Bruce Lee's wife. He did, but I don't think, I think it was more of um, either it was, he, she felt he broke the contract or there was some, uh, there was some, because he had paid to take that footage, but his, his, yeah. his using of the footage, how he used it, I think was the problem. Yeah, because I think, um, oh shoot, I can, I can, I can see the film. I remember this. Mm. I think there was something that that because of the the kind of some of the stories and conspiracies he was sort of hinting at in the film, they thought was defaming. Yes, uh, I think I, th- I, th- I think that's how it went. Right? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. Is that because I, I? Yeah, go. Oh, I was gonna say, I think that's where the idea that he was actually like taken out by by the mob. Yes. For something came from that film. And there, there's no reason to really think that. So, yeah. Um, and so there were that and that was just the beginning. Right. I mean, of literally Bruce Lee, <laughs> Bruce Lay, Bruce Lai, Bruce, like, oh, my dear God. Like yeah. <laughs> Korean Bruce Lee's, uh, Jack, uh, Taiwanese Bruce Lee's, Japanese Bruce Lee's. They, I think there were Japanese ones. There must have been. It just, I'll just go with it. Um, cause yeah, there was. There, there, dra- there were Dragon Lee's. There were, you know, Lee Lee's. I don't know. There were, there's was, there was even like <laughs> Judy Lee's, who was Bruce Lee's sister. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Dragon Lee's twin brother and Dragon Lee strikes back and Dragon Lee comes from the dead and whatever. It's like, oh my dear and God. They even made a movie called The Clones of Bruce Lee where they tried to get all the top Bruce Lee clones <laughs> together in one film. <laughs> there was a chubby one too. Who's the chubby one? Oh, I'm trying to remember. You're not talking about Bolo Young, right? You're talking about, because they tried to make oh, no. him Bruce Lee for a while as well. Yeah, no, there's there was an actual it was like one of the the many clones of Bruce Lee, and he's he he's, it might have been a Philippine clone that yeah he's like this like 
little chubby guy. Right. I think I think I know who you're talking about, but I can't remember his name. But yes, well, here, it'll yeah. be Bruce something anyway. The point is, or Lee something. <laughs> it'll be Bruce or and or Lee because that's because none of them were actually Bruce Lee, of course. They that they just or Bruce no. Lai or Bruce Lay or whatever. They all just <laughs> this is the thing, right? And but there was so much demand, I guess, for this Bruce Lee content that people just kept going like I mean, they would have made like like literally a hundred films unless people were actually paying for it. God help us yeah. all. <laughs> well it's it's the sort of thing it's 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 hard to picture nowadays. Right. But when you get to the seventies and the eighties, that's um kind of the last era of totally new kind of like genres. Yes. Yes it is. I agree. So you you have all these things that take off and create like a whole new branch of entertainment. Whereas by the nineties, it had all been kind of tamped down again. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And even when you get to like the, the internet era, a lot of what comes out on the, on the internet that makes a sensation is kind of like a copy or a a chop up of something else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to wrap your head. It's like, I always use the example of star Wars. Okay. Why so that when you, well, when the original Star Wars came out, you remember it broke the entertainment industry. Yes, it did. I was there. I remember. It, yeah. Yeah. It rearranged how everything worked mm-hmm. because it did shit nobody thought. Like, people don't realize you didn't really market a movie back then. Mm. And that's kind of ties in with, with what we're talking about today because when you look at these martial arts things, even say Bruce Lee, you'd have like t shirts, you'd have books. But you didn't really have like, you know, like the Bruce Lee coffee mug or action figures or anything like that. That wasn't until Star Wars did that, mm-hmm. that that really became a thing that people thought to really, they tried with Jaws, but they couldn't get a handle mm-hmm. on it. Yeah. But, but it wasn't really like the merch thing wasn't a big part of it. But Star Wars changed all of that. And it's the same kind of thing like with, with like the, the martial arts right. flicks. Before you had B- Bruce Lee, they were kind of just a thing. They were a distraction. Yeah. But then he comes out. He becomes a big celebrity. That's what just like, again, just the, the dam breaks and it's everywhere. And it's it's hard to imagine something like that happening unless you've, you've lived. Through, like the closest we'd get nowadays would be, say, like Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Although, considering when the Harry Potter craze started, that would be you know most 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 young people. It started even before their time, depending on how how old you are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a teenager, Harry Potter's been around for your whole life. Yeah, but it was that idea that when it came out, it was such a big thing. Even though it was basically just kind of watered down version of what Star Wars yeah. did from a from a marketing perspective. That's kind of the closest that. It's the thing that just happens and just takes yes, over. Yeah. Something appears and just becomes dominant. Yep, no, yeah. I get it. Oh, you could make an argument to a limited degree that the Marvel films did that as well. Like the They did they did, but again it's that idea they're just kind of doing what Star yeah, Wars yeah, did. I would agree. Right down to the trolls oh, yeah. thing. Oh absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Yep, you're right. And but before the before Star Wars broke things because remember, that's what we're still talking about here. Before Star Wars broke things, you got people just said, oh, uh, producers just said, oh, people like this. Let's give them more of that. And that was simply yeah, how the, like, the industry worked. They didn't work on marketing. Not exactly. Because, I mean, all these Bruce Lee clones are for marketing, right? 
Right, but they're they're marketed as yes, movies. they're marketed as movies, not a product per se. I mean, Bruce Lee yeah. would eventually be marketed as a product, uh, you know, by his you know family and such. But that and others. But you're right; they're not. They're just a movie. Like, you just go see this movie. There's nothing really connected to it, unless you're the owner of the local martial arts dojo sponsoring the movie. In which is in which case, come you know, come see the movie and see a demonstration of martial arts was pretty common too. Yeah, this this sort of idea, I mention it because it's going to become important in about six years. God, do we have to wait that long? Okay, fine. Trust me, <laughs> folks, it's worth waiting for. All right, so so as I said, there's so we you know beginning of the seventies, Bruce Lee becomes a big hit. Um, the, the Hong Kong stuff starts pouring in, and the other thing that I would note that goes on in the seventies though is, is there's very quickly uh, a kind of split between the inner city people who are mostly black and Latino who are watching the martial arts films and going nuts for them and the white kids out in the suburbs who are not allowed to go into the inner city to those black theaters and watch those movies. So kind of. <laughs> so, that, so that becomes a bit of an issue as well, where progressively, and this is one of the reasons I would argue that martial arts end up getting demonized, because you mentioned that earlier, is because, again, white kids um, aren't allowed to see them. Like, you know, there's something that those weird minorities are doing. So therefore, they've got to, there's got to be something wrong with them. And so yeah. the media took every chance to try to make it into the next um, fear-mongering craze, basically. Yeah, and that, that, that kind of changes in about five years. <laughs> yep. Okay. Oh, sure. Let's get into the 80s. Why not? Because this, this is kind of what we've been dancing around. In the 80s, you kind of see that you've already hit peak martial arts. Mm-hmm. There's something there. There's there's two things that happen. That two films that sort of shape where things go for the next little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the big one that kind of affects it all. I'm gonna say was in uh, 1984. You had the original Karate Kid. Right. That's true. And this is where I think what you see happens is going getting at what you were just saying. Mm -hmm. Th this is what finally kind of whitens up the martial arts mm -hmm. because it's literally about like a, 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 a generic suburban kid who learns martial arts to like fend off bullies and stuff. Right. And yeah, that's true. It's where you kind of, um, it's the threshold of the, the marketing craze for martial arts. Right. And it kind of ushers in the sort of it's it's the um, this is the era of the martial artsification of things, right? Yeah, yeah. That Daniel San is so like wholesome and 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 such that martial arts aren't scary anymore. Yeah, yeah. And it sort of ends up going back to where, um, going back to um, what we saw prior to the seventies, where martial arts becomes a flavor that you add to things. Right. And specifically around this time, what you end up have happening is a movie comes out that again creates another phenomenon the next year, mm -hmm. which was American Ninja. Well, if anything to you know, whiten up martial arts movies, American Ninja will do it. Yeah, well, American Ninja, what that does is it creates the pinnacle for martial arts marketing in North America and the last nail in the coffin. Cause that becomes the era of ninjas, ninjas, ninjas. Yes. Yeah. That's very true. Which will kind of end everything. I, I yeah. would 
argue that there actually is you kind of skipped one small step okay okay one small step you skipped uh you jumped right to karate kid but at the beginning of the 1980s i believe it was 1981 yes 1981 it started television producers said well wait a moment we could, uh, we, you know, there's this command, demand for martial arts films among you know, all these suburban kids and stuff like that, but they won't go down to the theaters. What if we just gave it to them on television? And so you got Black Belt Theater, which was a series of syndicated ah. kung fu movie packages that started in 81. So people in the suburbs and countryside, you know, in farms, wherever, were, you know, Alaska, were, were watching kung fu movies. In fact, Black Belt Theater actually reached roughly three quarters of American households could see Black Belt Theater every week. Yeah. At least according to the ads anyway, that they, that they ran. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, it was, uh, or as they say, with 90 markets sold, Black Belt Theater is as American as apple pie. And that, w- that, w- <laughs> that was their goal, right? Was to now reaching three out of every four households in America. Um, that was their goal. They wanted them, and there were also knockoff packages as well. You know, they took these 70s kung fu movies, they edited out all the questionable bits like the sex and nudity and the gore, and they put them on. So everyday people in 81 were watching these things. That makes sense, yeah. Okay, and so it was already being, some. it wasn't something, oh, is this what these black kids are watching? Oh, this isn't bad, this is all right, or this is terrible, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so by the time The Karate Kid came around, I would argue... It had, white America had already begun to accept martial arts films. Um, okay, and then the Karate sense. Kid just took it to the next level where it said, yeah, yeah. Here, and now here you've watched all those Asian guys do it on Black Belt Theater on Saturday afternoon. Now you can watch that happen on the big screen and except this time it's a white-ish kid. Mm-hmm. I always wondered about that. Why they chose for the Karate Kid, you know, he's LaRusso, he's, he's like Hispanic. I always wondered about that, why they chose a Latino main character for a movie that was meant basically for general white audiences. But they chose a Latino actor and, and character for as the main character. Because I think it's it's the idea it Ralph Macchio is still pretty middle of the road. That you yes. had just that little that little hint of spicy flavoring, but not enough to frighten people. That makes sense. Plus, maybe he was the most, like, generic 80s teen guy that applied for the part. <laughs> yes, that's that's absolutely true. That's true. Um, I, and, I mean, he, he has a great charm. I'm not, I'm not putting him down. Actually, I love the original Karate Kid. That, I would argue, was... Okay, I'm going to use myself as a test case example. I actually would say that... And, you know, I did see you know, Black Belt Theater. Yeah, I, was, I saw some kung fu movies and such. But the first kung fu story I probably, or martial arts story I probably fell in love with as a kid was The Karate Kid. I will say that. You know, my father loved it. He actually took it to us. To, and this never happened in my life. I've mentioned this before, I think on the air. My father took us to see The Karate Kid like two or three times in the theater. That never mm. happened in my life with any other movie <laughs> ever. But my father just simply thought The Karate Kid was like the best movie he'd ever seen. He loved it so much. Wow. We actually went to see it multiple times. And so unsurprisingly, that had a bit of an in, in, impact on me. It's like, oh, my God, my, my dad loves this movie. Okay, well, it is a good movie. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a fun film. And yes, it kind of homogenizes and, and, and um, if you pardon the term, whitewashes uh, the martial arts. But 
Not to the same degree, I would argue, as American Ninja, so which I've interu- which I interrupted. <laughs> so what's so wonderful about American Ninja, Don? No, nothing really. But um, if you true. mentioned Karate Kid, don't forget Karate Kid also had Arnold in it. So that was uh, wait, what? That was a big draw. Karate Kid didn't have Arnold in it. Yeah, it did. Where? The uh, uh oh, I can't Miyagi. Oh, right. That Arnold. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We were just talking about Schwarzenegger, so I was confused. Okay. So, right. Yeah. yeah no. no, it had um, Pat Morita. Pat Morita. Pat Morita, yeah. yeah. Who was apparently... He played one... Arnold on Happy yep, Days. Yeah, he played Arnold on Happy Days. And I remember reading, actually, I think it was Pat Morita was... Uh, he was apparently one of like, the nicest guys you could have, ever meet. Everyone in Hollywood absolutely adored that dude, apparently. Hmm. He was apparently... Like, I've, I've heard inter- people mention him in interviews about the era... And that's you know he'd literally be the guy that if uh, actor couldn't literally couldn't make rent or whatever Pat Morita was was the guy they'd say go go ask Pat you don't need you don't have enough money for food go ask Pat and he'd give you the money no questions asked wow. he apparently would just give you the money it's like there it is okay huh yeah Pat was apparently like the super nice guy uh, and so maybe it's not entirely surprised that yeah he became Mr. Miyagi. This although Mr. Miyagi's kind of a little more of an asshole actually, but we're not going to worry about that. Um, so yes, you're right. It did have a Pat Brady who was a known name. He was actually kind of popular, and he, but again, you know, mid tier. He'd still be be at best tier celebrity, almost C tier really. Yeah, well, I'd say B because it's it, it's at the time Happy Days was just kind of. Uh, mm-hmm in decline yeah, yeah, at yeah. that point yeah yeah 80 well 80 84 was just it had just ended but he was he was on it during like the 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 popular time yes, yes he was yeah yep so he was he was he was i'd say he was a, a good solid b and that's probably one of the reasons they wanted him because mm. that would be the the name that was a draw yeah yeah nobody's going from ralph macchio back then yeah because i don't i think he'd been in like one other film or two other films maybe yeah maybe Maybe. Yep. Very true. Very true. Mm-hmm. All right. So, yeah, so there we go. Um, so we've got uh, that we got the Karate Kid and then that le- around the same time, of course, uh, American Ninja. And as you mentioned, the ninjification of everything because ninjas became the coolest thing ever possible on you on God's given earth uh, in the 1980s, which, you know, what's interesting, though, is the Japanese had already gone through a ninja craze. By that point. Yeah, like... A couple years. Actually, they'd gone through uh, two, actually. They went through mm-hmm. well, they went through one in the 60s, and then there was kind of a lull, and then they went through another one in the 70s, like late 70s. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, more, many of them starring Sunny Chiba, in fact, or at least the best ones starring Sunny Chiba. <laughs> um, which, again, is ironic because, if I remember right, almost none of his ninja movies got actually shown here, or the very, sorry, very few of them. He did a ton of them, but they very not many of them for whatever reason got shown. Mostly because American studios and producers were busy trying to churn out more American ninja clones instead. Yeah. So we got the master, for example, and we got all the other like American <laughs> ninja. Because as as the book mentions, and this is absolutely true, I, I would actually call this the Power Rangers effect, where they very quickly realize, well, wait a sec. We can be shooting with the actors over here, and we can have stunt. As soon as they're in ninja costume, that's actually someone else doing all the stunts. So, yeah. so we can speed up production. We can have better. We can have better action because, again, it's a real martial artist, not the not the stupid actor doing the martial arts, right? 
he just needs to take yeah. off his mask and you know in the final scene or something like that <laughs> maybe we should call it the spider-man effect anyway so the point is is that um but yeah they quickly realized that from a production standpoint ninjas were fantastic and people couldn't get enough of them because ninja yeah and then they put them everywhere like every character suddenly became a ninja there were ninjas that, that was like gi joe suddenly was like just filled with ninjas and you're yeah. like okay that's uh I, I was worried about the dress code, but this kind of thing is starting to seem a little odd, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, ninjas ninjas are awesome. Ninjas were, you know, the ultimate deliverers of death. <laughs> That's the only way to mm. describe them. Oh, and don't forget, you are actually forgetting one other uh, example of the, uh, we'll call it, uh, whitewashing of um, martial arts. Because at the same time American Ninja was happening, there was another white martial artist that was uh, tearing up the screens or kicking through them. Uh huh. That would be Chuck Norris. Ah, uh, well, he starts in kind of the, the, the late 70s. Technically true. Technically true. He's actually a product of the late 70s, but I, I think he really hits his peak in more of the, like, early 80s. He he does, the Chuck Norris stuff tends to be kind of a holdover, because every Chuck Norris film is basically Billy Jack with a beard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be about right, so yeah. He, so he's still, he's kind of the, the, the thread... Mm-hmm that gets you through the eighties. Right. That he's, he's kind of the old school film, like, like martial arts film guy. Cause he makes a bunch and it's, it's him roughing up like some small town sheriff or him entering some tournament to catch a warlord or, you know, him staging a commando raid. And well, that would and come later. It, once the V that's a very eighties thing. Once Rambo took off, then he's suddenly a commando guy. Yeah. Before then, you're right, he was mostly modern Billy Jack. There is one about him, like, hunting down either a ninja or, like, martial arts assassin that's an urban one. I'm trying to remember what it's called. But Oh, there was, there was a few, because at, at this time, like, you're right, Chuck Norris is a big deal. He makes a ton of films. Yeah, he makes, but my point is, again, they were, they were saying, well, American audiences, the white suburban audiences, they want this stuff, but, you know, they're not so sure about the, these Asian guys and that. Can we, can we have a white hero? And... Chuck Norris is basically the answer to that. Um, so mm-hmm. I would argue that even Karate Kid is riding in on, you know, Chuck Norris's uh, coattails, so to speak. And, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, so sorry to, sorry to inter- disrupt your thesis there, but, but don't worry. There were lots of ninjas. There were movies like Ninja's Extreme Weapons, Ninja Demon's Massacre, Twinkle Ninja Fantasy, Ninja and Warrior of Fire, Ninja in Action, Ninja and Phantom Heroes USA, Bionic Ninja, Ninja Raiders, Ninja Queen, Tough Ninja Shadow Warrior, uh, <laughs> and the Death Mask of the Ninja, Ninja Warriors, presented by Sybil Danning. Um, and <laughs> then it just goes on from there. It just goes on and on and on from there. Like, oh, sorry. Ni- there's also, yeah. I forgot, Ninja Turf. The world is out, the word is out, don't cross their line. And so we get all kinds of stuff. And this is, this is 80s, of course. Like, yeah. So... The, the 80s were just uh, – we haven't mentioned the key reason why all this ninja stuff is being churned out. And Sybil Danning was your clue, audience. The answer is <laughs> videotapes. Just like yeah. the 70s grindhouse market needed constant new films for the theaters, now suddenly there's a videotape market in the 80s that, and anything direct to, that can go direct to video or be repurposed for video is suddenly making money. And because because Americans 
have suddenly have access to cheap VCRs. So everyone gets one and everyone wants content. And so what do they yeah. fill it with? Ninjas. <laughs> yeah, and that that's kind of the beginning of like the end of of this martial arts cycle because there's a lot of burnout. One of the things that happens, um, mm -hmm. I've seen reference directly to the Karate Kid was the rise of the McDojo. Yeah, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Where everybody and their brother opened like a, a dojo and and there was just so many of them that because it was such a big fad for a, a few years. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah. And then kind of the bottom falls out and it by the end of the 80s, it doesn't die off. Mm -hmm. But it's it's now part of the lexicon. Yeah. At this point, martial arts are part of the cycle. And the next big trend that you see mm -hmm. that influences martial arts and pop culture is the Ninja Turtles cartoon. Yeah, okay, I can see that. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. That that it brings the kids in mm -hmm. because like the grown ups and that, they're they're all ninja out at this point. The McDojos are all shutting down, there's not that much interest anymore. Mm -hmm. So because it's now these are now a fixture. Right, yeah. The nin and I say the Ninja Turtles cartoon because it was aimed at kids, whereas the comic really wasn't. Well, there was but also got the, Ninja Tur the Ninja Turtles movie, which was actually quite successful back in its day, the first one. It was, but it was kind of, it, it, it was more, it took more from the cartoon than the comic. Okay, fair enough, yeah. Like, the movies had nothing to do with, like, the comic. And then, what you see going into the 90s is the next step of that you've mentioned was the Power Rangers. Yes, and that that's where I would say in the 90s that, that um martial arts really that became the new focus of martial arts because suddenly kids yep. were loving martial arts when they were done by uh multicolored heroes in spandex good looking youth from all walks of life all walks of <laughs> life there we go yeah that would have been the better line okay fine good, but done by good good looking youth from all walks of life there we go with cowboy they're slow thinking weapons expert <laughs> but, but anyway and it's funny because this again it's it takes us right back to the 70s but mm -hmm. the kiddie version, because if you remember when Power Rangers came out, the parents mm -hmm. groups were horrified and it started, yes, they it were. started this trend of play fighting, dun, 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 which, you know, apparently had never been a thing ever, but it went right back to that idea that when you look at the early seventies, <clears throat> uh, the martial arts film, because it was like, you know, the urban youths and that, that were into this stuff, it was seen as threatening and a little bit scary. And that's what we have now. But mm -hmm. because it's part of that, that 20 year cycle now, it's a fixture. It's the kiddie version mm -hmm. of it. And so now we've gone full circle. Yeah, you're right. It's the, the kiddie. And so now martial arts are safe and uh, something that even little kids can do. Mm -hmm. For and yeah, no, no, I get it. I get it. And Something similar, I think, happened in uh, the in Asia as well. Uh, for example, I believe in the nineteen early nineteen nineties, basically Golden Harvest shut down because they weren't making money from martial arts films anymore. So they basically shut down. Shaw had uh, either had already shut down or shut down shortly after as well. Yeah, yeah I, they shifted. Shaw technically still exists. It's called TVB and it's the leading television producer. Mm in Hong Kong, but they basically shut down their film division is what they did. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, by the, by the early to mid nineties in America, you know, uh, martial arts have been kidified 
And I mean, there were still martial arts action movies popping up from time to time. Yeah. But you're right. It, it was it was no longer counterculture, right? Yeah. At this point, it's bland and safe. It had gone through the full cycle. And it was now bland and safe. It took, what, roughly about 20 years from, you know, that dangerous stuff happening in the that urban black youth were into to now something that is just you see on everyday TV for kids. But yeah, that was the cycle. Yeah. And it, 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 it goes and goes. Cause if you remember then when you get to like the end of the nineties into the two thousands, mm-hmm. you start to see the idea of the martial arts film and that aging up again. Yes. Yes. You're right. They did start to age them up again. And that's a side effect of the kid people that grew up with them in the seventies and eighties are now in charge and they're produced. And so they're producing the stuff that they loved when they were a kid. And so, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the classic cycle. There's a lull and then they come back. Yep. And, you know, in, in Asia, you can still like, uh, they've been producing for the last like what, 20 years, Donnie Yen movies and stuff. I mean, martial arts films do get still made in Asia, even in Hong Kong. They still make Hong Kong action films. They have for a long time. They have without stopping, but they aren't as big as they used to be. Like they're 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 kind of more like you know they're genre films. Yeah. So you know some people watch them and like them, but as they're not usually mega hits. Um, in fact, the last martial arts mega hit that I can think of, you'll laugh when I say this. Actually, it comes from the early two thousands. In fact, would probably be Kill Bill. Yeah. Which was Quentin Tarantino's tribute to all those martial arts grindhouse films that he loved to pieces. Yeah, don't don't forget too at that time that the 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 kids who loved the Ninja Turtles grew up to be like the teenagers mm-hmm. that love Jet Li films. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's too. it's part of that cycle now that every twenty years you're going to see like martial arts for kids, and then you'll see them like age up, age up, age up, yeah, and yeah. then become kid stuff again and. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, also a side effect of those McDojos you mentioned is is that whole generations of kids did grow up going to martial arts classes. Yeah. Like my sister sends her three kids to martial arts classes. Well, the oldest isn't going anymore, I don't think. But the younger two, no, they went to martial arts classes for most of their life. It's studying this like, you know, kitty version of you know, karate or whatever. You know, it has some other weird name, but it, it emphasizes more of the self-defense and, you know, more of the... Uh, more of the softer side of it, you know, athletic side of it. Yeah. But the key point, it's still ultimately that. So martial arts isn't scary to them. Yep. Martial arts. Oh, yeah. Like, it's just, it's just background noise. It's it's not scary. It's not not all that special to them. I mean, the only thing that's happened in the world of martial arts, really, that I'd say um, has changed in the last 20 years is MMA. Yep. The mixed martial arts became a big deal. But again, that's not movies. People want to watch the real thing. Yeah. So instead of watching, you know, Jet Li kick ass or Dan and Donnie Yen, we're watching, you know, this year's MMA tournaments and such. We're watching real people beat the snot out of each other <laughs> or roughly one minute to two minutes of people like them taking shots at each other till one grabs the other and pins them on the ground and it's over. Yeah. But anyway, that's but whatever. If you, if you enjoy that kind of thing, that's fine. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not not an MMA fan. I get the idea, but it always turns into a couple, uh, two sweaty guys on the ground, you know, grappling around. Mm-hmm. For a little bit, it's like hmm, I watched this when I was a kid. It was called pro wrestling. Yeah, and and again, that's kind of I. It's it's. Yeah, I can I can see the similarities. Yeah, it, though supposedly, uh, and far as I know, and I'm not saying MMA is not real because you know, I guess it is kind of, but it's still oddly enough, it still has the same result. <laughs> it still goes the same place as pro wrestling. 
I'm not sure what that says, well, but anyway, yeah, it's okay. it's, it's, some, sometimes there's interesting fights though. That's true. Yeah. And it's, it's like the boxing back in the day with the, cause I remember like, yeah. uh, when Ali was boxing, it was that bigger than life, almost cartoon caricature kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Was showmanship, yeah. right? That's what's into. Anyway, before we let the show go on way too long, <laughs> we're, 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 reaching two hour mark. We haven't even talked about our top 10 list or what top, whatever list. Right. <laughs> um, we should probably get to those before we run out of time or before one of us keels over. So, cause we're recording this in the evening folks. All right. So, you want to go first or shall I? Well, you start. Because like I say, I've got some substitutions so we don't have repeats. Okay. So <laughs> so do you want me to do my whole list and talk about each? Or do you want to, or are we going to go back and forth? I th- we'll go back and forth. Okay. So I'm going to start with, um, I've got my top 10 you know, martial arts films of the 20th century. Now, I specifically limited them to the 20th century. And I limited it to martial arts films that I personally like and or recommend. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so there so there's that, um, and so because of, and I'm gonna go I'm gonna start with the with number ten and work my way to number one because that, that's more entertaining that <laughs> way. All right, so for me, although technically I have two number ones, so that's where things get weird, but we'll, we'll deal with it. All right, so one of them we've already talked about anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Actually, we've talked about the number ten as well because my number ten is the Karate Kid. Okay, um, because I do think. That the Karate Kid was an influential film, definitely for me. I think it is a good film. I think it like it's it's simple, and Daniel fucking cheats at the end. <laughs> but except for that, um, the Karate Kid actually, I think is a is like it's a just a good wholesome example of the hero's journey and uh, and a modern martial arts film for again meant for a general audience. Mm-hmm. So that would be my take on it. What do you think of the Karate Kid, Don? I was not a fan. Uh, that doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Okay. It, it is funny though because if you see it, it fits into that um, 1980s. Weirdly enough, according to 1980s films, um, high schools were just riddled with murderous sociopaths. Yes, yes, they were. Yeah, like Which... like literally murderous. Because at the beginning, the 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 Cobra Kai dude was going to throw Daniel San off a cliff. Yes. Yep. So. So yeah, yeah, kind of murderous. Yeah, that's like because because otherwise you are weak. Anyway, so yeah. No, no, I get it. No, no, I get it. Yeah, that's true. And but again, you got to think though. Let's 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 go with the theorem that where the guys in the the kid uh, the the scriptwriters of the nineteen eighties and producers were actually the children. Remember from of what the fifties and sixties. So they're writing their recollection of high school and their idea of high school. So I would argue that it's probably actually the 50s and or 60s that were actually things were a little more, there was a lot more bullying. There was a lot more, you know, harassment back in those days. And they they wrote it in the 80s as kind of a reflection of that. When ironically enough, the 80s was mostly an era of prosperity. I don't, I, as a kid during the 80s, I don't really remember there being that much bullying. Like it really wasn't that bad back then. There was bullying, but I don't remember it being that bad. And I was a nerd. I should have gotten bullied. I could get a tiny bit, but not much. There there was, I think, one of the reasons you see so many of these like eighties like uh kind of like youth films that have so many murderous sociopaths is because that's how it feels when you're a teenager. That's true. That's true. Yeah, it feels like the world is against you. Well and and, yeah, and not just that, but like if you're getting bullied and, and this guy's threatening to like kill you, when you're like twelve it 
really feels like your life is in danger because you, you don't really have anything to compare it to. And that's that's why mm. that's why like the 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 80s teen movies did that. Like Goonies has a scene where they almost commit vehicular homicide on the one kid, which mm-hmm. I don't think was their intent. But again, when you're the kid in the middle of getting picked on like that, it does feel like you are in deadly danger. That's true. That's true. Oh. Okay, fair enough. All right, let's move on. So, what's what's your um, number ten or whatever, whatever the first one you want to talk about? Well, I've, my list isn't just movies, but mm-hmm. I will pick a movie that I know is not on your list. <laughs> I, I bet it. Okay, which one? I'm going to the uh, 1972 hit, The Death Master. You're right. That's not on my list. Okay, tell me of this one. Convince me <laughs> that I should be watching The Death Master. It's sort of a mishmash of everything 70s. Uh, the, the premise of the story is it's this kung fu hippie that comes back to the commune and they're under attack by bikers. And mm-hmm. he kung fus up the bikers and they decide to like join up. Meanwhile, this new guru shows up and is teaching the hippies his ways and he's a vampire. So the movie... That's awesome. The, the movie is Kung Fu Hippie Bikers versus Vampires. <laughs> That's actually pretty awesome. Yeah. Okay. It's not a great movie, but it's one everybody should be subject to at least once in their lives. Okay. Okay. No, no. I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. I'm with you on that. Okay. I will, I will look into it. I will look into it. I'm sure I can find a copy on YouTube or something someplace. Um, Doesn't sound like it's still in copyright. I'm pretty sure it's not. I bet nobody Um, who had anything to do with it wants to acknowledge that fact. Yeah, I believe that. There's probably, yep, yep, you're probably right. All right, moving right along. For my number nine is, actually, I chose a movie series rather than an individual film because I think it's appropriate, which is the Zatoichi movies. Okay. Um, For those who aren't familiar, Zatoichi is a wandering um, masseuse, blind masseuse in old Japan, who is also a sword master. He really is blind, though, and he's got a sword hidden in his cane. He is also a human ginsu knife, (laughs) basically, like... Like, you know, he is, he is probably the top competitor for Ido Ogami from Lone Wolf and Cub for actual, for like the most, uh, death in his movie <laughs> series, probably. But actually, I, he, and they made like almost 30 Zatoichi movies. They might have made more than that. Plus, uh, plus four, four seasons of TV ser- episodes. So Zatoichi definitely killed more people than Ido Ogami, which is an impressive <laughs> feat, I might add. Um, the Zatoichi movies, by the way, are a lot of fun, though. Despite the way I'm making it sound, he's actually kind of this sympathetic wandering tramp character. Almost kind of like, imagine like Chaplin's The Wandering Tramp, if you even know who that is. Um, you know, with a, you know, he's this kind of down in his luck wandering masseuse who's blind and everything. Who goes around and eventually gets involved in like other people's like troubles, usually involving gangsters or lo- corrupt local lords. And then eventually Zatoichi like has to kill a whole lot of people um, in usually some very entertaining martial arts fights. Now, <laughs> interesting enough, I did not include the Lone Wolf and Cub ones on my list. Mm-hmm. And even though technically they are martial arts films, but I would consider them to be samurai films. And I, I actually would put Lone Wolf and Cub in a separate category. Yeah. So that's why I did not. I But Zatoichi is got that down and dirty martial arts aspect to it. So I include him. Hmm. Okay, that's that's my take on it. Have you ever watched any of the Zatoichi movies, Don? I've seen a few. Yeah, I think there's, there's 
27 or at least uh, somewhere around there anyway. I, I've only seen about maybe a little less than half of them. The problem is they tend to be a little formulaic. Yeah. Um, if you're going to watch Zatoichi, Zatoichi movies, look for a list of top 10 Zatoichi movies because you don't have to watch them in order. Each one is a totally separate story. Okay. The only thing in common is that you have the same actor and the same, char- same character Zatoichi. Um, and look for a top 10 list of Zatoichi movies and watch those because – yeah, that way you'll at least get the best versions of the formula because it's a formula. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. Even the TV series follows the formula. Zadoichi wanders into town. Zadoichi helps people. Zadoichi kills people. Zadoichi leaves. <laughs> um, that's the formula. Right. Really, that's the formula. If you enjoy it, it's awesome. If you don't enjoy it, yeah, you're yeah, watch something else. But <laughs> but they are pretty awesome actually. They're well. They're actually some of the best of them. Like Zadoichi and the Chess Master are really well shot and well well produced movies for their time. For any time, actually. Mm. Um, all right. So that's Zadoichi. Give me another one of yours, Colin. Okay. And I think that illustrates the differences in our list are going to be you're picking the high-quality stuff. <laughs> uh-huh. My, Remember, these are my top films of the 20th century. So, yes. Okay. Mine are, mine are a little more schlocky. I pick stuff that appeals to me. Yes, I can see that. So yes. I think for my next one, I'm going to... Uh, it's not going to be a movie, it's okay. going to be, I'm going to go to the year 1967 for the unstoppable phenomenon that is high karate. What? Okay. <laughs> is this, what is this? You said it's not a movie. What is it? High karate is basically um, your, your granddad's version of Axe body spray. Okay. It was... Oh, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Body spray. Yeah. Yes. I remember. It, yes. it was like an aftershave and the premise was it would make you so irresistible. You would have to learn martial arts to fight off the women. <laughs> and every mm-hmm. bottle came with a little handbook of martial arts techniques. That is awesome. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I offer this up because it's such a bizarre concept and it shows that when you're getting into that, that, that prime martial arts film era that you're seeing, it's starting to seep into pop culture in, in, in odd ways, but it's in the zeitgeist at that time. That makes sense. As much sense as karate themed aftershave can anyway. (laughs) Yeah. 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 There's, there's that. Yeah. So what's your next one? <laughs> okay. Um, my next one, again, I'm going to keep with my uh, my my um, somewhat higher quality <laughs> theme, um, is the, the Once Upon a Time in China movies, oh, okay. uh, which starred Jet Li and Donnie Yen to some degree and uh, Rosamund Kwan and such, and which were, of course, based around Wong, the Chinese legendary character Wong Fei Hung. And they were an interesting thing because they start in 1991. So they came right at the end of the Kung Fu uh, movie boom, basically. Like Kung Fu movies proper. And they're an interesting transitional one in, in the sense that they are Kung Fu movies, but they're also character pieces. Hmm. Like about you know, Wong Fei Hung and what it was like. Because the basic premise, at least of the first one, is that uh, this you know Wong Fei Hung is this martial arts doctor character. So he, he's not a rebel. He's integrated into society. And then but because of the opium wars and the corruption he sees around him, he's forced to go out and take down some bad guys. Mm-hmm. And... And they're very well shot. They're very they're stylized, well acted, well written, well shot. 
I mean, yeah, if you're going to watch the Once Upon a Time in China movies, I think there's three or four of them. Um, I highly recommend. And th- these are not the movies that made Jet Li a star, but they definitely helped. Hmm. They de- they definitely helped uh, boost him towards his stardom. Okay, what's your next one? <laughs> the next one is going, I'm going to go to the year 1975. Okay. And I'm going to choose the Dungeons and Dragons monk character class. Origin- okay. Or- originally from the Blackmore Supplement. I've seen one review refer to it as both being at the same time far too Asian and not nearly Asian enough. Right. Because Mm -hmm. it's such a bizarre concept that you have this this pseudo medieval society Uh that has wandering monks. Literally what it was, the original Dungeons and Dragons was just everything that nerddom thought was cool thrown in one place. Yes, yes, it was. So this is Kung Fu the series. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is Kung Fu the series, except Kwai Chan Kane wanders into um, D&D land, basically, from the from the far east of Karatur or whatever it was. Yeah, well, which, which wasn't, a thing was Blackmore, which is weird, but, and he might be an elf this time. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, he could be an elf or whatever. Yeah, that's, that is so odd. Now, question. So since they were supposed to be effective with their hands, how good were the monk class? Like how much damage could they really do? Could they do as much damage as a sword with their monk abilities? Monks kind of in, in the earlier versions of the game worked a lot like uh, what magic users did. Okay. They start off really weak and pathetic, but if you can get them up to around fifth level level or so, they start holding their own. Okay, yeah, that doesn't surprise me here. Because you don't want to start them out as too awesome because then everyone would just play monks. Well, and it's the idea, too, that, you know, because Cain never, like, carried a sword or wore plate mail. No. Monk, monks yeah, yeah. in the game don't really use weapons or carry armor. But okay. you get armor class bonuses as you go up and your bare hand attacks would do more damage and have more effects. So that was why once yeah. you got to the point where you could do more than, like, you know, two points of damage, they, they weren't terrible. Right. Did they ever become massive like magic users did? As I recall, not quite, because I think right from uh, AD&D, I think there's a level limit. Okay. That as they go up in level, like the the, the master monk, I think 15th level is, is like the, uh, the, the master of flowers or something. There can only be one of them. Okay. So when you start, once you get past 10th level, which in the game, 10th mm-hmm. level is like a magic level and old school D&D because that was basically mm-hmm. as high as you were ever going to get. Right, yeah. But once you got that for the monk, there could only be limited numbers of them. So mm-hmm. you had to beat the guy who currently held that rank in order to get that position. Or one of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's actually a cool idea, though. That's actually pretty cool. I like that. And then that was one That yeah. was one of the things from a lot of the martial arts movies is that you had to like beat the master to be the master. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's actually really cool and in, and in theme. So that, that's kind of neat, actually. Mm. I wish more D&D classes did that, where there could only be a limited number of masters of each level. So if you want to act, even though you got the XP, if you want to go up in level, you have to go find the guy who's equal to your next level or one of them and beat the crap out of them and, and, take, <laughs> and basically take their level. That's actually a really neat idea. I like that, actually. <laughs> Anyone can be a dickweed, but if you get up there... You know, mm. um, okay, so... Um, my next one, again, this, mine is a movie list entirely. 
um, would be Master of the Flying Guillotine oh. from 1976. Now, there's more than one Flying Guillotine movie. This is something to keep in mind. But the Master of the Flying Guillotine is a is a very cool um, martial arts flick that I would generally recommend. The It's an interesting movie in that the first half of it is basically just a martial arts tournament. And then the second half of it is a uh, kind of revenge horror revenge story like it's almost two movies um but the tournament aspect is really really cool like they they do a really good job you know what it is it's kind of like street fighter Mm. it's kind of like the original street fighter referring to the to the to the computer game and in fact actually i believe there's comments to the fact that street fighter was inspired by master of the flying guillotine Mm. um except the final boss in this case is a crazy old blind monk who is basically a Terminator, like a living Terminator, and he has this rope chain weapon that can basically cut your head off. That's what the flying guillotine is. That's like a, a bear trap on a chain kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it's like it falls over you, your head like a hat, and then it's like snaps shut and then chops off your head. That's one mode for it. But the other mode, of course, is if it's just in disc mode, it basically cuts through everything like a buzzsaw. <laughs> and it's wielded by this unstoppable guy. It's like, which is pretty insane. <laughs> uh, which is really unstoppable evil master. And that's the villain of the story. That's the master of the fighting guilty is not the hero. That's the villain of the story. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's a bit. So, so like I said, it kind of becomes a horror movie in the second half where the heroes are basically trying to like, oh, my God, this, how do we deal <laughs> with this unstoppable martial arts killing machine? And so and and he's recruited a bunch of the characters from the tournament to help him and anyway it's it's a really nifty movie there are other flying guillotine movies though that are different so this is specifically master of the flying guillotine because mm-hmm. uh, the flying guillotine there was a whole series of them right and what happened with the flying Gu- and some of the other ones because i remember seeing another one when i was a kid which because i was a little bit confused when i first when i first started watching this i saw it recently i was like oh this this is not the one i saw um because the other one was basically there were a couple of people that had flying guillotines, which were like the ultimate death ranged martial art weapon. And so the heroes had to learn how to use flying guillotines to counter the evil guys flying guillotines. That's the one I remember from a kid. Okay. Um, but yeah, that was, but this one, Master of the Flying Guillotine, is generally considered a classic. And it's got this really grungy uh, Euro instrumental score that apparently they absolutely ripped off like a <laughs> German composer. Like they didn't have the rights to use this movie, the music at all. It's got this really heavy beat that gives it a really kind of dark feel to it. So, yeah, I would recommend if you get the chance. Huh. I would definitely recommend anyone to watch Master of the Flying Guillotine. If for no other reason, then, yeah, it's it's um, it's just a neat film. All right. Okay, we've got to move on. So, what's your next thing? I'll go to uh, 1982 for the world's first unmartial arts movie. Uh, okay, what, They Call Me Bruce? Yep. <laughs> Oh my dear God! Okay, sure. Why not? Well, I chose that one because you can see that because they made an unmartial arts movie, you can kind of see how we've already reached the peak. Be- because it's it's not just a parody martial arts film; it's kind of a send up of the whole concept. Because uh, for anybody who's not seen it, uh, the premise is the main character emigrates to the U.S. and because he's because he's I believe he's from is he from Hong Kong in it? 
something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's been a yeah. long time. I saw that when I was a teenager. I, yeah. I saw it when it came out. So, yeah, yeah. I saw it on video shortly after that. Yeah. So yes. But the idea is because he's Asian, everybody just assumes he's a like a kung fu master. Yes. Yep. And he plays up on that because that that was that was yeah. his his one speech that he uses throughout the film. Mm-hmm. With this mm-hmm. hand, I can break your face. With this hand, I can shatter your nose. Look into my eyes. I'm an Oriental. And people are like, oh, fuck, man, I'm out of here. Uh, until he yep. finally runs into, like, an actual martial arts guy. <clears throat> but it's, 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 again, I call it an unmartial arts movie because it's playing up on that idea of, of you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the awesome, unstoppable martial art that you saw in all of the other films. Yeah, yeah. It's a exactly. it's a total yeah. send up of that kind of thing. No, no, that Yep, yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Um that that's actually a good choice actually in in that sense. But cuz yeah, it's you're right. It's the deconstructionist mar- deconstructionist comedy martial arts film. Mm-hmm. So that works. It's a reaction. <laughs> okay. So my next one, my number 6, uh working my way down would be Jackie Chan's Police Story. Oh. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh yeah, exactly. And it, another absolute classic. Um, if you know what police story is, you'll be you'll be nodding your head. And if you don't know what police story is, you just need to go out and find a copy. You can probably find it on YouTube or wherever if you want to. But this is not Jackie Chan's first movie. He's made movies for a little while at this point. This was uh, one of his rare. I think it might have been his one of the first modern movies he did. Yeah. Where basically where you're watching him as this like modern cop character. Um, dealing with crime in Hong Kong. But, of course, it leads to lots of martial arts hijinks and um, some incredible stunt work. Like, lots of stuff that there's no way any insurance company would get anywhere <laughs> near because, oh, my God, does he nearly die so many times in that film. Oh, my God. And he really nearly died a couple times in that making that film. Like, Police Story is just, like, absolutely wonderful. Like, comedy, martial arts, action, you know, you, um, little romance, you, and, you, know, you name it. Police story has it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yep, police story would be my next recommendation. How about yours? What's what's your next on your list? I'll pick another film. I'll go to the year 1985. Okay, yes. And offer a film that shows we've hit peak. This is kind of just the beginning of Ninjas is the new thing that revitalizes the martial arts film. Mm-hmm. But at this point, they're still kind of looking. They, they, they're, they're in decline. They're trying all kinds of crazy stuff. It leads to the epic film... Jim Cotta. Okay. <laughs> I know people and and for anybody who's not seen it, it's a martial arts film where the guy is like a gymnast mm-hmm. and he's recruited cuz he's got to enter this tournament what are the odds to stop this evil warlord what are the odds who's like turning yeah. people into zombies. And luckily during this it it's like if I remember correctly it's like a race. That luckily there are pommel horses and and paired rings in that set up at convenient points. So the hero can use his magical combination of martial arts and gymnastics to bizarre effect. Well, gymnastics were super popular for a while in the 80s. Like that that was a thing. I remember yeah, that. Especially after the American Olympics. Yeah, Mary Lou Retton was the one that... Because uh, she managed to, to win gold with a broken ankle. and then, But it's the idea that I'm going to get up on this pommel horse and do my routine. Well, basically all these like zombie peasants just sort of walk into his feet. 
it's 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 if if ever there was a martial arts movie equivalent to the room this is it yeah okay yeah and 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 oh i i think you're gonna probably mention another one later on i'm guessing i don't know for this for sure that's probably closer to the room than this is but yes this is this is up there. maybe the, now the thing that got me about jim cott is apparently it's based on a 1957 novel called the terrible game <laughs> And I'm trying to find a copy. They were going to make it, make a movie. Uh-huh. They were going to make a movie version in the 60s starring Rock Hudson. So I'm I'm trying to find this book because I have to see where Pommel Horse is part of the original story. Right. Mm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Good luck. Good luck with that, sir. Good luck with that. All right. Number five on my list. Again, going, because uh, I, I have to include him somewhere. The Street Fighter, mm. starring Stanley Chiba, um, which this was the first Chiba movie that came out, and they were marketing. Apparently, he hates the movie among others, or hated it because he passed away recently. Um, it was him in his kind of Bruce Lee-ish best. The main, the character in the Street Fighter, uh, whose name is escaping me at the moment, uh, is basically a kind of private detective slash troubleshooter character who basically just kicks the butts of lots of, like, gangsters and such in, in the movie, basically, and, like, evil martial arts fighters. It's, it's set in modern Japan. Mm. And what just makes it work is that Chiba's character is just so over-the-top <laughs> and so charismatic. And it's also the movie, one of the very few times in your movie, where you see him strike a guy's head, and then we get the X-ray version of the head <laughs> exploding from the inside. You'd have, you have to see it to understand, folks. Um, it also has one of the greatest opening theme songs of the of the 70s or 80s <laughs> that if you I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, folks, you'll you like I've listened. I swear I've listened to that theme probably like a 100 times. That's like one of my favorite movie opening themes of all time. But the movie itself is great. Mm. The movie itself is great. Like it opens with a uh, him proposing as a monk, basically going to a condemned prisoner. He's helping a condemned gangster escape. Uh, for escape prison like i said he's a troubleshooter he works for both the good guys and the bad guys and he basically uses like uh chi martial arts to basically stop the guys put the guys in suspended animation basically fake the guy's death so that when he so they think he's dead so the prison thinks he's dead and then shiba rescues him if i remember right mm-hmm. uh rescues the body and then revives him and they're like well he's dead so we don't have to worry about him but he actually no he's not dead shiba did that and then the movie kind of goes on from there and no, it's it's really cool. Hard, hardcore martial arts, very violent at times. But um, again, it's it, it was the movie that put Shiba on the map as far as the grindhouse circuit went. Yeah. People went nuts for him, and you can there's that sign Viva Chiba. That was the <laughs> that was an actual thing that you would see pop up on American posters and such for for his movies. His movies, he did a whole he did like three or four Street Fighter movies. He did a whole bunch of other uh, martial artist movies. Like, was it Karate Bullfighter? Oh. That was another one of his. Um, then there was the Sister Street Fighter series, which in which he plays the mentor character to a character that's not related to the real Street Fighter series, but that's what they called it in English. And uh, no, they're great. I love them all. I love those movies a lot. Um, they're, they're lots of fun. And again, lots of, lots of action. And uh, a Japanese take on that genre. Yeah. All right, Don, over to you. Well, I'm going to go to 1991 to the phenomenon, actual phenomenon this time. That okay. was mm. Street Fighter 2, the video game. Coincidentally enough. 
Okay, yeah. <laughs> Which, of course, is named after the movie, among other things. Yeah. Um, not connected with the movie in any way, though. Uh, just, just a note. <laughs> Street Fighter 2, the video yeah. game. Okay. And I specifically say 2, because number 1 came out in, I believe, 88, and it was reasonably yeah. popular, but Street Fighter 2 was the fighting game that created fighting games. Yes, it was. It absolutely it, was. It had all the crazy characters. It had all the maneuvers. You could actually fight each other. Mm-hmm. And that 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 yeah. was something they they had games that could do that back in the eighties. But this this again, it was kind of the total package. It was almost like you got to play a cartoon, right? And it, yep. no, no, it was yeah. it was it was crazy. I I don't know if you remember uh, when it it came out. Oh, dude. I was there when you played it for the first time. I think I think you were there because that was uh, was it what was the arcade? It wasn't silver. What was the arcade called? It was called Silver Palace or something like that. Was the it? one with the laundromat? It was the arca- yeah, the one with yeah. the laundromat <laughs> near the university. And by sheer coincidence, I and uh, a couple other of my friend, my roommates, and that came wandering in at the same time. You and your you and your friends came wandering in. We already knew each other at this point. We we didn't plan it. We just all happened to show up on the night they uh, on the day they released Street Fighter Two. It arrived at the mid- and then there was also a group of Asian guys there as well, yep. if I remember right. And we basically we showed up all around like seven. You know, it was after dinner. We basically showed up seven. I think we were there until they finally kicked us all out. Yeah, like three. And it was just, yeah, like something like that. Yeah. And it was just this nonstop because wherever people kept playing, this is the way it worked back in arcades for those who are younger and not familiar, is that Street Fighter would have the two people could play at the same time. They'd play against each other, obviously. And then the person who wanted to play next would put their quarter on top of one side. And then when that person who was currently playing lost, the person whose quarter was next on the list would then step up and play. Yeah. So we basically lived a martial arts tournament is what happened that day. <laughs> Don and I were par- participants in a martial arts tournament that was almost a religious ceremony is the way <laughs> I remember it. Because everyone just gathered around this one machine and everyone was just watching this tournament. And they were occasionally they'd be cheering and you know talking and stuff like that. But everyone was just fascinated by this machine and this 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 game that was unlike any anything anyone had seen at the time. So no, I like that's etched in my memory. I don't know why, but that particular night and that game is like one of my the highlights of my university days, actually. <laughs> yeah, because it, it was a thing for a while. Because I remember there was a yeah, there, was. there was a group of exchange students from Hong Kong uh, mm-hmm. that at that arcade were almost unbeatable. And I remember Stan, yes. Stanchi used to call them the uh, Seven Savage Orientals. Ooh, and, yeah, yeah, and. Yeah. They they uh we practiced until we could finally beat them, and that's where Stanchu started calling us the four Caucasians of the apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I remember I remember the seven you know, the seven Orientals. Yeah. I do remember that. I had forgotten the Caucasians of the apocalypse. Yeah, because they yeah. were they were good guys. After after like oh, yeah, after were. you could beat them, like somebody finally beat them, they were amazed, and we got to talking with that. But no, it was it was the thing that for months that was what everybody in town did was was playing that that game and there'd be people like eight nine deep waiting to get on it yeah. and then oh yeah and then if you remember that was back when doke had hair and had just been hit by lightning so uh we weren't surprised when he uh picked block as his character <laughs> <laughs> right right yep oh my god yeah yep yep yeah, uh, Blanca suited Doke. absolutely <laughs> yeah. no question on that yeah yeah he did yeah <laughs> wow 
No, I no. That doesn't surprise me that you chose that because that was a truly magnificent. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, like I said, one of my great memories. And we yeah, we spent weeks going back there on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. yeah, I remember. Wow. Oh, memories. <laughs> anyway, so let's move on. Um, number four on Rob's list: Kung Fu Cult Master, also known as New Heaven Sword and Dragon Saber, also known as Kung Fu Cult Master. I've mentioned it in the show before. It was kind of it was the movie that actually got me into wuxia, ironically enough. But basically, in the early 1990s, uh, I think it was Golden Harvest took um, a kung fu, well, a wuxia novel actually um, that had been popular for a while called Heaven Sword Dragon Saber, and basically said we're gonna we're gonna take all the best fighting bits from the first half of the novel. Because it's a really long novel series, actually. It was a, done as a newspaper serial. Um, we're going to take all the first half, all the best martial arts and craziest bits. We're going to crazy them up and include Semo Hung tied to a rock um, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a weird master. And we're going like, to throw in as much crazy martial arts crap as we possibly can. And it is utterly brilliant and uh, over the top. And yeah, there's a plot, but whatever. <laughs> um, and you... You, like there's so many cool scenes like they basically it's like kind of like here's a highlight reel from the books which you know i eventually did actually go and uh, found uh subtitled version tv versions of the books they the, the books don't exist in english unfortunately i don't think they do yet hmm. they might now but they didn't but they didn't before um and yeah the the basic premise is actually ironically enough the basic premise is about a character whose parents are like god level martial artists and then they're killed, and he's badly wounded with like this martial arts poison, poison death touch, basically. And then all these martial arts masters, basically, they feel sorry for the kid, so they keep giving him their chi energy to keep him alive. Mm. And then he eventually, as a teenager, he he's played by Jet Li, in the, young Jet Li in the movie. He goes on this kind of quest, kind of accidentally, to um, like at first just to kind of find a cure for himself. But then eventually, uh, he becomes a massive martial artist because they keep all he's meeting all these martial arts masters who basically t- keep teaching him stuff to try to help him. So as he gets better, he also gets stronger, and then gets involved with a whole big clan war between martial arts factions and stuff. And it's really crazy, over the top, <laughs> and lots of fun. And they never made the second half because the con- the company literally collapsed after they made wow. it. After it was released, the the, co- the production company collapsed. And so it was never made as a – there's no sequel to it, but the first half is so glorious you kind of don't care. <laughs> uh, I just wish there was a second half, but whatever. Anyway, all right, your turn. That was my number four. Okay, I'm going to go to uh, the year 1987. And this, this might be what you were referring to before, but I'm going to pick the movie Miami Connection. That's the movie I was <laughs> yep. referring to. And yep. if you're going to watch it, watch the Rift Tracks version. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You kind of have to. Now, Miami Connection is an interesting film because, as I recall, it was uh, produced, directed, and starred a a guy, by the way, of YK Kim, who who is a Taekwondo master. And he wanted to do the film. He always wanted to make films. And he wanted to make a film that kind of um, exalted the virtues of Taekwondo. Yes. Yes, he did. Yeah. Because he thought Taekwondo would bring world peace. Yep. And, and he's not a filmmaker. No. And the, the movie is one of those things. It sort of exists in its own universe. You can't really... It's not good, but oh my God, is it trying. It's trying so hard. And there's 
so much and it's so bizarre because it's about a group of friends that mm -hmm. all share a house and they're all like martial arts taekwondo masters and they have a band that sings taekwondo songs and they're fighting evil ninjas and there's a song about fighting evil ninjas that the singer on it is the sister of the leader of the evil ninjas. And it's, it's so hard to explain, but again, it's one of those things everybody should experience at least once in their life, preferably with the riff tracks guys providing commentary. Hmm. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. Yep. No, no, don't watch it without riff tracks folks. Just don't. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised you figured it would be on my list. <laughs> oh, oh, really? I, I can't guess why. Um, yeah. I think that's one of your favorite Rip Tracks movies. Actually. It is. It's a class. See the live version. The live version with the ninjas in the audience is fantastic. Oh, I okay. I'll track that down. I've never seen that. Okay, <laughs> I will try tracking that down if I can bring myself to watch it. Again. <laughs> All right. Um, okay, so my number three is another example of high quality. Sorry, Don. I'm going for that. I'm going for the uh, higher quality stuff. Although Kung Fu Cult Master and Street Fighter are kind of schlocky. Um, so I'm going to go with the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Oh, okay. Um, which is a utterly brilliant martial arts film. It's it's very simple. It's again, it's um, a young guy whose village, I believe, is destroyed basically by you know by evil bandits and stuff. Goes up to Shaolin and basically says, "Teach me martial arts." And they basically say, you know, piss off. And then he base, but eventually convinces them, and he has to go through the 36th chamber. Uh, the the 36 chambers are, the, are basically the levels that you have to go through to become a master martial artist at Shaolin, based on some, maybe based on reality, who knows. But it's got, it's a great, you know what the movie is? It's basically like a giant training montage. Hmm. But it's a training montage as a movie, like instead of just skipping through it with a, like a poppy song playing or something like that, we're seeing all the elements of, not all of them, there's not 36, a full 36, but we're watching the key moments of his training montage, basically. And it's really well done. Like it's Gordon Liu is the as the main character, uh, who's a good actor and great martial artist uh, on screen anyway. Um, and it's it's again it's considered probably one of the maybe top five kung fu movies of all time. And there's a reason for that. Like there are so many movies after it that copy it. It's insane. Hmm. Not as much as my number one, <laughs> but but the, the uh, or actually either of my number ones. But it's no. Um, 30, uh, yeah, the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. If you haven't seen it, go see it. Or find it anywhere. Highly recommend. But again, it's the one that actually has all like these cool, really cool like training sequences where they have to run around with like water, like carrying buckets of water, but they've got knives under their, under their, um, strapped to their arms so that they lower the buckets of water to, it'll be, they'll literally stab themselves. Mm. Things like that. And there's so many neat training ideas. It's like, oh my god, that you, it's it's like it's the movie that everybody rips off for training <laughs> stuff after it, basically. Like every martial arts movie, training, yeah, they're ripping off Shaolin to a degree. Again, number one has a little bit more, but Shaolin is like it was training martial arts training movie, the movie, and it, but it's really fun to watch. It's really well done and creative. Highly recommend. Mm. All right, Don, that was my number three. What's what's yours? I'm gonna go to the uh, early 80s and mm -hmm. I'm going to pick something that exists in many formats that being Hokuto no Ken oh good choice good choice okay not not a martial arts movie that's where I focus but if I were just doing martial arts things that would have been on my list well, it, too. it was absolutely it was a couple of movies 
and TV shows and a comic. We 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 we, we well, if, if the animated ones, yes, but the live action one we pretend doesn't exist. Live action, yeah, um, that that a lot of people, uh, yeah, and and you you'd you'd mention it in passing before. Uh, if you've never seen it, Hooked and Ken is is uh, it's Mad Max where you scratch out car and write in martial arts. Yes, starring Bruce Lee. Yeah, with giant eyebrows. And it's exactly right. And no hips. It's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah he, every, it's exactly what you think it is. Every episode, he wanders into another town where there are like evil, evil mutant bad guys there, and he beats the crap out of them with martial arts, and then he leaves. That's pretty much every episode or variation there. Yeah. It does change a little bit later on, but uh, but yeah, but it's awesome. It's awesome in that you know it's it's the most manly thing ever because 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 he's got the, he's got his death touch. And then, yeah, after he he literally just walks up to the bad guys, taps them, and then turns around and says, "You are you are already dead," and wa- and wanders off. And then their heads literally explode, or their whole bodies. Like there's parts, or their whole body, or something that starts with different parts of their body and stuff like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's the most manly. Like you, your 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 chest hair will grow watching Hope to No Ken. Like it really will. Like it's like one of the most manly '80s things ever. <laughs> I'm with you on that. With you on that. No, hooked to no can. Fist of the North Star, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah, Fist of the North Star is what it's usually called in English. <laughs> and um, yep, there we go. All right, so my number two then is probably this is my personal favorite. Okay, number my number two is my personal favorite martial arts movie of all time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the num- my number ones, there's a tie for number one, are the most significant martial arts movies of all time. But my Number two is my personal favorite. And so there's a difference. I just want to clarify. Though it's extremely good as well. And that movie is Iron Monkey. Oh, okay. Iron Monkey, which um, has Donnie Yen's in it. Uh, I'm trying to remember, I don't remember who plays the lead character in Iron Monkey, but it is... It's here. It's it's basically martial arts um, Robin Hood is what it pretty much mm. is. He's basically a local... It's a martial arts superhero story is the best way to describe it. Even, even Jack would like it. Um... The what basically happens is is that he's a local doctor. Like there's a corrupt the basically it's Robin Hood. There's a corrupt local government official. The local magistrate's corrupt as hell, and and so the local doctor who's like a martial arts master puts on a mask and becomes this character Iron Monkey. He covers him. He basically wears a ninja suit with kind of missing the top part of his his head is visible, and he he and his assistant go around and they you know they they basically do hijinks to stop the bad guys basically. Um, and the, the bad guys have some plan, plan and he stops them. So, you know, that's what it, but the martial arts are sublime. Like the whole, the way whole, it's, it, the way it's presented and the style and everything like that. Like, oh my God, like here, I'll give you an example. Then this is the thing that caught, had me from this moment right near the beginning. There's a scene where they demonstrate how, how good these characters are at martial arts by the one character opens a window to let in fresh air. Uh, his assistant opens a window. And then he and his assistant, the, it blows all the papers on his desk up into the air. And he and his assistant basically bounce around the room, quiet, grabbing the papers out of the air and, and recompiling them back together. And just the way they do it with such fluidity and such style and everything, just, just mesmerizing. And that's all they're doing is they're just gathering papers in a, the most acrobatic martial arts way possible. And... and and then the movie just goes on from there, and the characters are fun, the story is fun. It's like I said, it's a Robin Hood s superhero story, is what it is. 
but it's it's so fun. I, I can't I can't recommend it. And the martial arts are so beautiful. The acting and the direction. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Um, I haven't watched it in a while. Actually, you know, I'm going to watch it again tomorrow just because <laughs> I know I'm now like yeah, I have to go. I have to go watch that movie again. All right, that was my number two. What's yours, Don? I'm going to go with uh, 2004, mm-hmm. the movie Kung Fu Hustle. Ah, an interesting choice. Again, I limited mine to the 20th century, but I would have, I might have put that on my list, actually. I put, yeah, I might have put that one on my list as well. Okay, why Kung Fu Hustle? It's one of the ones, it goes with what we were saying before about how you get like the 20-year cycle. Mm-hmm. Kung, Kung yeah. Fu Hustle is made by people who were obviously fans of uh, yes, the martial yes. arts films of the 70s. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a cheesy, schlocky, over-the-top 1970s film made with huge budget and modern special effects. So it's just it's it's just mind-blowing to watch. Yes, it is. Yeah, and it's really funny, too. It, 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 it's actually really funny. It is, and it actually, it has a really good ending. Yes. It has a really upbeat ending that's pretty funny. Yep, 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 I agree. I actually saw that in the theater. I actually saw that that in the theater in Taiwan. I was was lucky because it actually had uh, English and Chinese subtitles on the the big screen. So I actually could understand it too. Um, So no, that was wonderful. I think I saw that in the theater in like 2006, I think is roughly when it came around. Mm. In Taiwan anyway. But yeah, Kung Fu Hustle. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, folks, definitely. But I would argue, okay, Kung Fu Hustle is one of those movies, though, that I would recommend would not be watched as their first Kung Fu movie. Yeah, because it's, it's, it plays on all the old ones. Exactly. It's like watching They Call Me Bruce first. If you watch <laughs> They Call Me Bruce first, it will just be baffling. You won't understand what you're looking at. It won't make any sense. Yeah. Because it's, again, it's reacting to something else. So you have to watch the originals before you can see the reaction. So Kung Fu Hustle and Damon Call Me Bruce definitely don't watch them unless you've watched a number of other martial arts movies first, especially the stuff they're parodying. Yeah. Um, speaking of the stuff they're parodying, here's my top two. One of them I've already mentioned, Five Fingers of Death, also known as King Boxer. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, it's the movie that started out the uh, the, the craze, basically, of uh, Kung Fu movies. And I think... And it, it rightly deserves it. Like, if you're going to watch a Kung Fu movie, I would put that among the top three easily and probably number one on the list because everything you're going to see after that, to some degree, is almost it's almost a reaction to that, hmm. right? So, in fact, even it even influenced comic books. So the main character learns this style. Let me tell, tell me if you've heard this before. He learns this style called the Iron Fist. <laughs> it's a secret martial arts technique that makes your hands glow and makes you even more effective when you're punching. Huh. I think I've heard of that before someplace. Where did that come from? Um, so, you know, it's so influential. Like, it, But again, it might be one of those movies if you've watched a number of kung fu movies and you don't realize that this is the first one of the first anyway that you're looking at you might think it's derivative but no it's everybody else is copying this mm-hmm. it's the other way it's kind of backwards plus it's it's very well shot very good like solid story as as um, every single character almost every single character in the movie is actually there for a reason like they all serve a story purpose and a character purpose in the movie which is not common in kung fu movies trust me they go through like i'm not talking about the dickweeds but every named character in the movie actually has a role to play some surprising roles, especially once you get to the end. Like I said, it has to stick around after the tournament. Don't think it's over because it's not. <laughs> um, the tournament's kind of a stepping stone to the real ending. All right. 
And the other one that I would pick, again, because it's so influential, and we've already mentioned it, is Enter the Dragon. Um, Because, again, it is the movie that popularized kung fu movies around the world on on the next level and launched Bruce Lee's career. And I do think that if you're going to start watching kung fu movies, I would suggest these two, Enter the Dragon and Five Fingers of Death. They literally were the two movies, as we talked about, the one-two punch that started the kung fu craze, so that's where you should begin. Mm -hmm. And then everything else you watch after that is a weird react is almost a reaction to those two. I did consider putting One Armed Swordsman on the list because it is actually a good film, but I consider overall these are two more important films. Yeah. And so that's why I would recommend watching. Hmm. So that's my top ten uh, kung fu films of the twentieth century that I recommend people check out. What's your number one thing, Don? <laughs> Go. Number one thing. Anybody who knows me knows this has to be it. The mine top spot is by far Count Dante and the Black Dragon Society. You're gonna have to explain that one to the audience, Don, because many of them probably have no idea what you're talking about. I'm gonna try. It's not gonna be enough. Anybody who read a comic book in the 1970s saw the ads for Count Dante and the Black Dragon Society, learned the deadly hands of death. And you can see like the really bad, like mimeographed picture of him and his pose with the claw hands and stuff. And his afro. Yeah, and he had a magnificent afro. And Yes, he did. And the story behind him and that, it's, it's amazing that nobody's made this into a movie. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. He's born uh, John Timothy Keehan in uh, February 2nd, 1939. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's, uh, he, his dad was a physician and his mom was, was, was basically like a, a socialite. So he came from a well-to-do f- family. Uh, he got into martial arts. He was a, an instructor for judo and karate. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparent, yes, yeah, was. apparently he was actually, a, he was a, Great martial artist. He was a fantastic instructor, too. He used to organize tournaments, but what kind of got him a negative rep was he focused on the flashier sides of the martial arts. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't the honor. It wasn't competition. It was like, again, like the Chambara kind of stuff. It was the, the flashy techniques, yep. Yep. the big moves. He... he um, he always was looking for to generate publicity for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In um, 1967, he kind of falls out of the spotlight for a bit, comes back in 67, calling himself uh, Juan Rafael Dante, claims to, mm-hmm. claims to be um, a uh, Spanish royalty that was cheated out of, out of his, his, his throne, his position. He, uh-huh. he was actually Irish, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> yep. Um, he starts up the, the Black Dragon Society's his his dojo, and he just goes nuts. Like in 1970, they attack the rival Green Dragon Dojo. Um, one one of uh, one of this is happening in Chicago, if I remember right. Yeah, so, yeah, I believe it was. He ends up like one of his students kills one of the other guys with a sword. Yep. They're they're arrested and charged with assault, and for some reason I couldn't find why he's also charged with impersonating a cop from this attack. When when you look up his history, it's it's just batshit insane stuff like that. He tried blowing up a rival dojo once. 
Mm-hmm. Um, no surprise there. <laughs> in 1974, he kind of runs a follow the mob of uh, Jimmy the Barber yep. uh, Katwara. He may have mm-hmm. he may have been part of like a like a four million dollar heist. We're not sure if he was involved or not. Uh, mm-hmm. He he had um, financial interests in like a number of porn shops and auto dealerships, just for good measure. And mm-hmm. and in 1975, at the age of 36, he dies of a peptic ulcer. Poor guy. It it really is, and 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 this guy, him and his life was just so crazy. Mm-hmm. That it's like I said, it's amazing that they never made a film and people haven't heard more about this dude. They will someday. He'll end up being like a Netflix original series or something at some point. Oh, you you you. You'd expect like I only found a lot of this out by accident because I made myself a Count Dante action figure, right? Because yeah. I remembered the ads and I went looking mm-hmm. for more pictures of this guy, and that's where I found out like a lot of this just craziness that he lived. Yeah, Count Dante, that's your number one. Okay, yep, I believe that. That doesn't <laughs> surprise me, not in the slightest. Yep, yep, Count, and I think that's a good choice actually because you know. He's the. In fact, that follows up from the movies I just suggested nicely because he's the reaction to that, right? Mm-hmm. He's 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 there. How it in, came into pop culture, and he's kind of the reaction to that within pop culture itself. Yeah. So I think that works pretty nicely. And yeah, go go look up Count Dante, folks. He, <laughs> it's it's quite the story. He's, he he was quite the character. Yeah. <laughs> So on that note, I think I will bring our Kung Fu action uh, series here to a close. Um, So hopefully all of you have Kung Fu films that you love and adore. If you actually want to share them with us, we'd love to hear about them. Drop by ObeyTheDNA.com and leave a comment with some of your favorite Kung Fu films. We'd love, I'd like to know if there's some that I'm missing that, or, or maybe you have comments about the ones that we've mentioned. We'd love to hear about that too. Either way, drop by ObeyTheDNA.com and leave a and leave a leave a message or a comment. Anyway, any final thoughts, Don? Remember, martial science provides a way of training bring mind, body, and spirit together. Now break the brick on the bottom. Ah. Okay, I'll try, but I'm pretty sure I'm gonna break my hand. Use your forehead. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> I, I'm not using I'm not using my head anyway. That's dumb. Okay. <laughs> Good night, folks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at obeythedna.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya.